This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, the leading provider of audiobooks. Listeners of the talk show can download a free ebook and get an extended free trial of the service by going to audiblepodcast.com slash talk show. See, I upgraded to uh, the, what do you call it, the Mavericks on this machine that I record the show on. I'm, I'm woefully under <laughs> informed on Mavericks. I still have never even seen, I mean, you know, besides the keynote, I've never even seen it running because nobody I see in real life is uh, brave or stupid, whatever, brave enough to uh, to run it on their computer yet. And uh, and I'm I'm not going to run it on anything that I need to use. And I like I would normally just like install it on my laptop because normally my laptop sits on my desk closed, not being used because I never go anywhere. But recently I've been going places. And so like the last thing I want to do is like blow up my laptop with some beta like as I'm bringing it on a trip to work on it. Hmm. I find I found this summer that I'm I, I think it was clear from the last couple of versions of, of Mac OS ten, but especially this one where it really coincided with a new version of iOS that my attention is is so much more on iOS than Mac OS ten that it's not that I'm not interested in Mavericks, but I'm willing to wait and then, you know, just have Syracuse to teach me everything about it. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the changes on OS X, it's so much more of a mature product. The changes are so much smaller on, in the grand scheme of things. Like in day-to-day use, what am I re- what's really going to be different for me if I upgrade to Mavericks besides it might not work as well, you know, <laughs> at this point? Right. Um, you know, like once it's out, you know, I might even wait until point one, um, just because there, I don't really have any motivation to update to, update to it. Hmm. Also, you know, I, I've always felt, you know, I mean, you know, you famously have never let me forget about how I installed iOS 5 Beta 1 <laughs> in California on my on my phone. Like two hours after the keynote. <laughs> that's, that's the kind of thing I think every iOS developer does once. <laughs> so, you know, with iOS, it, I always felt, even though this device is always on me and it has to do things that are, I guess, somewhat important, like phone calls. I don't know, phone calls aren't that important in my life, but supposedly, they're, you know, they're supposed to be important. And I've always kind of felt like iOS, like I was safe to mess that up. But the Mac is where I get my work done. And so the Mac, like I'm very conservative with upgrading. And like I'll use, like even, even when like, you know, a, a 10 point something, point seven or point eight update, you know, one of like the mid cycle updates, even when one of those comes out, I won't install it for a few days after it comes out. Just, just to see if anyone else has like a whole bunch of ma- ma- major problems with it. Cause there's just like, no motivation for me. There, there's almost always something in uh, the App Store app bothering me that I have to reboot my computer for an update, and I'm I'm just I just put it off for like a week. It's always the it's it that's that's how things have been going with me too. Yeah. Well, because again, it's like you know the, what's the, what am I really going to get if I upgrade to some bleeding edge version of OS 10? Like if it's a security update, okay, but if it's just like. We added support for new printers. Like, who who cares? Like, I don't I don't really need that. We fixed some things in Safari. Well, Safari is never fixed. So you know, like, and I, f- I just feel like you need I need and and I, I don't even know if I can logically defend this, but I I feel like I need some stability in my computing life, and for me, that's become the Mac. Like, right, I'll, because I've that's st- your work, right? So I didn't upgrade to iOS seven on my phone right away. I think I waited till beta three, but you know, but I was running it most of the summer on my main phone. And, you know, it, I, I would say as the betas have gone over the years, it, it, even given how radical the UI changes are, it was actually, you know, 
it was not that bad of an experience. I mean, there were very few bugs that I ran into that were serious problems. Every once in a while, there'd be like a, a version would come out and one of the apps I use would crash all the time on it. And that kind of stunk. Because I'm not going to go, you know, you can't go and complain to developers that their at, app is crashing on a beta OS, even though... You know, <laughs> Believe me, people do. Oh, well, yeah, I know. <laughs> um you know, so it was annoying, but it was, you know, but I felt like, you know, having my Mac still running the, you know, the the, the standard 10.8, whatever, you know, was standard all summer, you know, gave me something stable to, to build on. So there's this iPad event coming up. Well, and... who knows what kind of event it is? Oh, did the, did the invitation not specify iPads? No, they never do. Oh, even for the iPhone one, which really well, usually was there's like some kind of like really obvious hint in in like the text of it. You know, there's... what was the one this week? Hold on, I don't even look. It, people, every article about the invitations going out is usually so insufferable that I I stopped reading them. Like it's just like what do you? It like it reads into everything way too deeply. And usually, if they're gonna tell you anything useful, they'll be they'll beat you over the head with it. Basically, like it'll be really clear. Yeah. Um, well, and, this one was. It says we still have a lot to cover. Oh, so maybe they're not releasing new iPads, and they're only releasing new smart covers. <laughs> That's somebody. Somebody. I did see somebody on Twitter suggested exactly that. Like, imagine if it, <laughs> if it was just new smart covers, and uh, you know, then then even reasonable people could say, you know what, they're, they are. They're, this company's losing it. Well, my theory um, from my I was I, we did our show last night, um, and my theory was that you know they they have the mini, which one of its most important roles is to try to close the price gap with the other you know crap tablets out there, and then they, and they have like the high end features they want to cram in there like Retina screens. I, I assume they're trying to cram in there and probably have done it by now, but you know the. Trying to achieve super low cost and all these high-end features is always a challenge, you know, and Apple historically has just avoided the, the super low and just kind of gone for, like, mid-range and upper range. And so my theory is that the existing iPad mini sticks around and just has a reduced price. And not, you know, not 200 bucks probably, you know, but maybe, like, 279 or 300 even, you know, 30 bucks less. And then the Retina can come in then at a higher price to cover, you know, the Retina-ness of it, maybe 399 well, the only problem with that, and I, I, I think there's some logic to that, and I definitely think if they go Retina with this year's model, which I now think they probably will. I have no, no inside juice about it, though. I, it's just a gut feeling, mostly informed by iOS 7, that I think iOS 7 just looks so thin and wispy on a non-Retina screen that I really think that, that – uh, I don't know. It just gives me a good, just the look of iOS seven makes me think they're not going to have a major iOS device. And I think the mini is a serious. You know, I think it's a, a huge part of the iPad mix. I just don't think that they're going to go another year without it as a Retina. But I definitely think that if they do go Retina, because Retina is such a big jump in cost, I think um, component wise that they'll definitely do that thing that they did with the iPad when it went Retina, which is keep the non-Retina one around at a right. lower price point. But the thing is, here's the other thing, though. When when other devices have gone Retina, like the iPhone and the iPad, they, they kept older year models around to have lower prices, but they kept the prices the same. So I don't know if starting the Retina Mini at $399 w- would work. 
Like well, when the three to... came out, when the iPad three came out, the iPad two dropped a hundred bucks, right? Right. So there is precedent for that, but right. and also, I mean, I, I think you know everyone in the, under the sun is arguing about how Apple should go lower end, as always, you know, netbooks, etc. But I think it might be problematic if they go into this holiday season with their cheapest tablet being three twenty nine, like that. It feels like if they can bring that down any lower at all, they could just sell even more. And I, I know the Mini sold ridiculously well even at three twenty nine, but that was also a year ago that that launched. And you look at what Google and Amazon and and all the no name people are doing with their with their crap tablets, and they're getting less crappy at those low price points. And I don't think again, I don't think Apple's going to have to hit two hundred bucks, but Coming down even just a little bit, you know, even from three twenty nine to, to to three hundred or to two seventy nine, I think that could two forty nine. I think might be a sweet spot for that device. That if they if they can do that, I think that would be great. Also, it's got to help. It, it, one of the reasons I don't think they would push it even maybe that far down, and certainly not lower than that, is because the iPad Mini kind of hurt their margins for a while, didn't it? Uh, well, as best as we can tell, they don't right. spell that out, but. So assuming it did, yeah. then keeping the old one around for another year at a lower price, but where the delta there is less than the like actual manufacturing delta of making it a year ago versus making making it today, uh, they can boost their margins a little bit just by having the cheap one be a little bit higher margin than it was last year, yeah. even if it's still cheaper. I think part of the clue for that too is just as simple as the pricing. That that three twenty nine was such a slightly odd price for them. You know, usually they liked stuff to add, end in a ninety nine, and if not ninety nine, a forty nine. You know, right on right. Three twenty nine is kind of inelegant. And they've done it before. I don't think it's unprecedented. And and as the iPods got lower and lower priced over the decade that they were so popular, you know, especially once they got under $200, you know, they had like 179 models and, you know, weird prices like that. Because once you get that low in price, you know, it's it's hard to, to drop another whole 50 bucks at a time. So I think that 329 price is probably because it, it at their normal margins, it would have been 349. And they really, you know, they really wanted to push it, you know. I, I don't think like two ninety nine would have been feasible for it. I don't think that they raised the price and milked it. I think that they took a took a hit on their margins so that it wouldn't be three forty nine to start. Yeah, that's, that sounds about right. But I don't know. I'm I'm having a hard time even getting excited about this because you know for the last year, or so I've had this mini and I've kind of made that my primary iPad. But I also hate the screen so much that I I keep I I've used my iPad three. I never even bought the four, but I've used the iPad three as like games or sometimes reading so it's kind of weird to have like two ipads and and i'm actually like i hardly ever even use ipads in fact my ipad mini has been used more for verizon tethering than it has for any other purpose it is a really nice little hotspot it's wonderful <laughs> <laughs> and it's it, and, and having you know my phone's always at&t because my house sucks for verizon um so having both services available for, for tethering is awesome when you're traveling because yeah. you're in a spot where one of them sucks. And and Verizon tends to be the better option for tetherers because way more of their network is LTE. And uh, so Verizon's great for tethering, but I can't use it for voice. So it's really nice having the option for both right. carriers. No, I remember uh, I've I forget I guess 
when I upgraded to the five and we switched our phones to Verizon, uh, we went all Verizon. And there are some advantages to that billing wise. Like there's like this family plan thing. So instead of paying for my iPad data plan on the iPad, it's, I just added the device to our, um, to our Verizon plan. Right. Yeah. Verizon has that thing where you can do that. Uh, and that's nice. It actually saves us a little bit of money. I mean, it's just, we still pay on, godly amount of money to Verizon every month, but it's, it's cheaper than it would have been to just have the iPad independently. But it was nice when I had a Verizon iPad and a AT&T phone, like when I was on the train to like between Philly and New York, there's dead spots for both, but you could, you know, I would like tether most of the way on Verizon. And then when it dropped out, drop off the tethering and see if AT&T had a signal. Yeah. Usually you can get at least one of them and and like when you have both it's 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 very it becomes very clear that neither network is overall better than the other like they both have yeah dropped spots and and crappy areas they're just slightly different right and you know it could just be like where the antenna is like some you know i there are certain hotels that i've stayed at regularly where sometimes i'll get a room and get a good signal and same hotel I guess maybe I, I I always get twisted around in a hotel, but I'm on the other side of the building and I don't get a good signal. Oh yeah, I, I mean, and like, and my town is very hilly. Hills and say, and radio signals do not get along. Um, but on top of our town hall, there's an AT and T tower, and I can actually like there's a window in my house from which I can just barely see a line of sight to the AT and T antenna. So the AT and T covers the town fantastically. And I guess Verizon didn't make a deal, so they don't. And yeah, it doesn't really matter. But anyway, so I, I'm having a hard time getting excited about the iPad because I've kind of stopped using iPads. Yeah, like, I, there's I a lot of people lot. who love them, who who All use right. them like for work, and and I've just I've never really gotten I've never crossed that uh, that line or, or or gotten into that pattern. I guess it depends on what I'm doing. I do a, some days I do a lot of reading on my iPad, and some days. It, it, of all the you know of the three things Mac iPhone iPad I not a day goes by where I'm not using my Mac. Well, I guess like if I'm on my vacation or something like that. Actually, I guess iPhone is the one where every single day I use it. Mac I use every day that I'm quote unquote working. <laughs> iPad, who knows? I get enough where I think it's worth it. I think it was worth well worth the purchase. But you know, it's clearly if I had to if I had to leave one behind, it was clearly what I would do. I think I mean and that same thing like. Part of that is why I like the mini because it's at least smaller and lighter. So if like if I'm trying to make a bag reasonably light to to carry somewhere, like it's not that big of a deal to throw that in. Right. Um, but I don't know. I mean, like I, I can totally understand the market for these giant screen phones because ideally, like if Apple made a bigger screen iPhone, I'd almost certainly get it for myself because I I do more of the things that people do on tablets. I do so much of that just on my phone with everything else. Yeah, I've come around on that too a little bit. I think I would, I mean, you know, I wouldn't miss the extra pocket space because right. I'm a nerd and, you know, who cares? I have big pants. And, and even for like, you know, like ebook reading or Instapaper reading, that sort of thing, something that's like a big ass, I, I, that's where to me is where the big ass phones really shine, I think. I mean, maybe, uh, certainly, but, and, you know, now I'm thinking about, you know, maybe the problem, maybe the reason why I haven't used iPads for the last year for the most part is that. I don't want to read on the mini because the screen sucks. Right. And the big one, like now that I have this point of comparison of the mini, the big one feels so giant and heavy. <laughs> it just feels ridiculous. 
So I don't, I don't know. know. Maybe the Retina Mini will, or yeah, yeah. Maybe the Retina Mini will change things. I don't want to get too excited about a Retina Mini because I almost, I, I for so long, I felt like if it took all the other iOS devices two years to go from non-Retina to Retina, it'll take. It'll take uh, the iPad Mini to at least two years too, but maybe you know. It's well, one of those how big is your sample size here? Right, it's not very big, and it might be one of those things too, where just the you know the, just the way that the whole industry everything goes forward so much faster that you know that like just let's just say not just the the screen itself, but like the the improvement necessary improvement to the GPU comes faster too. You know that it's not that surprising that it's just one year you know later. Also, you know, look at when the iPhone 4 with the, with the first Retina screen, when that was launched, look at the landscape of what everyone else had. You know, everyone else had low-resolution screens, right. for, you know, relatively speaking. Right, they were ahead but of the curve. Whereas- now, all these cheap tablets have really high-resolution screens that, that I, I'm pretty sure all of them are dense enough that they could be, quote, Retina screens. Right. And... Uh, and like the iPad Mini is like the only one that doesn't have it at this point. And the other thing too is that the difference between Retina and non-Retina is so dramatic. I mean, I know that there. I've heard from a handful of people who are like, you know, I really don't see that big a difference. And I honestly think that they must be, you know, either visually impaired or mentally impaired. Uh, <laughs> but it's a rare opportunity if they wanted to keep the old if they're ever going to switch to a model where they have a lower price point and but want to make the a lot of you know people who could afford who's who who aren't overly price sensitive still splurge on the higher higher uh priced higher margin ones margin uh retina versus non-retina is the moment to do that because i don't I think, think i don't think there'll ever be a feature that's that easily oh i see i see exactly what this feature does Right. right there in the store. I think also you can look at how Retina is scaling up. You know, with the phone, it was basically free. You know, because the 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 amount of data, you know, the size of the screen buffer, you know, becoming four times larger on a phone size screen, that was less of a big deal. And so, yeah, the GPU had to get better, but phone GPUs were kind of you know in that line anyway. Uh, then you saw when it moved to the iPad size that. There are substantial trade-offs, and still, I mean, you know, who knows what they're going to announce next week, but still, there are, you know, even the best Retina iPad today is big and heavy, and is noticeably bigger and heavier than the comparable iPad that was not, you know, the iPad 2. And then you look at the laptops, and they have these Retina MacBook Pros, which are basically MacBook Airs, but thicker, because they need way more power than the MacBook, way more battery power than the MacBook Air. And so, obviously, like, as you go up, you know, multiplying the number of pixels you're dealing with by four matters more and takes more horsepower. And and is that exponential? I don't know. It's, it's at least um, it's <laughs> it's at least you know math is working against you here. Right. And so it's possible that you know at the iPad size, maybe they just like at the phone they can just kind of make them all Retina and be fine. A lot but of pe- as you get upscale, you can't do that yet. And maybe you know maybe in three to five years. It'll just be like you could fit a Retina screen in something the size of the MacBook Air with no battery problems. Right. But I don't think we're there yet, and I think it's still a couple of years off. Yeah, I think uh, there's a there's a, a contingent of people who always complain, and I love them because I do like I love a a, a pedant. But if I it, is that, wait, is that how you pronounce that? I don't know. It might be one of those words. That would be the remember. best word to mispronounce. How do, how do you pronounce? How I thought it was pedant, but pedant? who knows? I I I really don't know. Oh, we'll figure this out. Um, we should both mispronounce it, just uh, just to anger them. 
pedantic. You say pedantic, so pedant, pedant, pedant. Uh, anyway, I love uh, picky people. <laughs> uh, and it, all over the years, when writing about the, you know retina versus non-retina, as these devices move, whenever I say that retina is double the resolution. There's a contingent of people say actually it's four times the resolution because they're they're talking about area as opposed to right. linear one resolution right. right that it's you know four times the pixels so you should say it's four times the resolution and I've always stuck to double because to me it, by their logic doubling the resolution would just be sort of an incremental increase you know like to me yes but and I always felt like it was better to downplay the I don't know, the marketing ease aspect of it. You know, that if I say it's four times the resolution, it's going to seem like uh, catering to Apple's wishes, you know? Right. I mean? And you'd probably get way more angry emails from right. about saying that than you would right. about saying twice the resolution. But I think but it I think it's useful to keep that in mind though when you think about things like the 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 graphics card and the power consumption, you know, that you're, you, you really are lighting up four times more pixels. So it really might be four times the energy consumption, you know, like from an engineering perspective, in a lot of ways, it does make sense to think of it as a four X increase, not a two X increase. Right. Like all the costs go up four X. Right. You know, you know, not the backlight necessarily. It goes up some, but not four X, but still like so many other things, the Ram, all the pixels, the GPU has to be pushing and rendering. And certainly all like the little transistors in the actual pixels, there's more of those. So yeah, yeah it, you can basically assume it's four times as expensive to support it hardware wise. Like even now, a year and a half after the, the iPad first went retina, it still is, it kind of blows my mind that a device that's never really operated while it's plugged in to power is pushing that many pixels at, at 60 frames per second. Oh yeah. I mean, even look at, look at the 15 inch retina MacBook pro and that has a higher resolution than my 30 inch desktop monitor <laughs> in which I cannot wait until they make a, I, I, every podcast I'm on, I'm going to wish for a retina desktop display until it happens. We'll get, let's this get is, to that. This is going to be my Gene Munster TV. That's Let's hold off on that. All right. Uh, and stick to iPads for now. Cause the other thing, though, I so I think the other the other product, I mean, you have to talk about, but it's the one that I, I'm finding the hardest to get excited about is the regular iPad. They still uh, making those? Yeah, but I think that they're still the best selling models. I do. Uh, that that would be news. I think I don't know. I'm, I'd be curious to know that if anyone's run the numbers. I think that they still are, but it's hard to tell how many. And and some of that is just from me eyeballing, you know, what people are using on airplanes and stuff like that. Uh, I would, you know, I don't know. I don't know how you would break that down. I, I, it's hard, but I, I think always that hear from people that that there's a ton of iPad two still being sold, especially to education because right. it's it's big and cheap. Right. And. Uh, and like, assuming they kill the iPad 2 this year, which I kind of hope they do. It's been around for quite a while. I'm getting a little tired of supporting A5s. But uh, you know, assuming they kill that, then what replaces it at that price point? Yeah, nothing. Keep- or is it, does that become the Retina Mini? Like, do they right. just tell education people just buy the Mini, and then you can choose between the you know the cheap one or the Retina one? I think it'll be that. a big it'll be a big tell as to how well that iPad 2 did continue to sell. If they keep a big-sized iPad at that price point, whether it's the iPad 3 dropped in price or whether they actually still keep the iPad 2 around another year, uh, it, would, God, I hope not. it would be a sign of how well it's selling, though, I think. 
So I think there's two big things I can think of to get excited about with the full size iPad. One is that I, I, you know, I know that there have been leaks of these the 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 case, you know, the hardware case that is now a lot more like a big. It's a big iPad Mini, which sounds stupid, but you know, the bevel on the side is is narrow. And it's that same curvy sort of thing. I can't help but think it's going to be a lot thinner too. And it's, I would hope lighter, you know, that they've, you know, because the screen is still going to be the same that they, you know, can, can pack everything into a smaller thing and get it back to like an iPad two weight and thickness. And I think that would be exciting because I think it would be a dramatic, you know, percentage wise, it may be measured in millimeters, but it, percentage wise, it could be a lot thinner. I think Apple also, you know, they want to capture the the margins of, the the high end buyers, the early adopters, the nerds, the power users, they want to get them back buying the big one because they can get a lot more money out of that one. And we all bought the mini this past year because it was new and awesome and, you know, tiny. Um so I think they're going to do some segmentation there. For instance, it, obviously if you look at the economics of the mini, pretty sure it's not going to have the A7. So if it doesn't have the A7, it's not going to have touch ID. Right. And so I'm guessing if they bring Touch ID to the iPad, which I wouldn't actually think is a guarantee quite yet, um, but if they do bring Touch ID to the iPad this year, I would say it will be only in the big one. And and that, it, that'll that be kind of a way to help. And of course, there will be only the A7 in the big one, or the A7X probably. Um, and, then the, and then the Mini will still only have the A6X that's currently powering the iPad 4. See, that's how I would would bet that it's going to play out. That you know, but again, it's like you said earlier. It's a small sample size to draw on to look at last year's iPad Mini and you know where it was on the annual chain of you know a whatever processors. You know, last year it was a year behind. It was still on Retina or non Retina. It might be dangerous to just take that one year of iPad Mini and extrapolate from that. But I still, that's what I would bet. That well, it's and you can look at the iPod Touch also. The iPod Touch has always been the low cost phone size thing. And the, you can think of the Mini as the low-cost iPad size thing. And uh, and the iPod Touch always has, like, last year's CPU. Right. Now it has two years ago CPU because they didn't they didn't revamp it. Although oh, we can, yeah. Although we could get to that soon because that's another one of my items to speculate for next week is will they maybe, you know, will they do new iPods? And maybe instead, you know, maybe the fact that they didn't appear alongside the iPhone at the quote-unquote music event, you know, I'm guessing no, because they still did call that the music event, and it would seem weird for Apple marketing-wise to have the music event without the iPods and then have the iPods come out five weeks later. But Well, on the other hand, how much does an iPod Touch really have to do with music at this point? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's kind of more like an iPad yeah. <laughs> at this point. Yeah, it's sort of like the, the iPad uh, Nano, Yeah, in a sense. I, I can't see them going into a holiday season without new iPod Touches. But I don't know. They they could surprise us. Yeah. Maybe they just drop the prices a little bit on the current ones. Um, I think Touch ID for the full size iPad. I think th- I'm going to bet yes on that because uh, I you you know that the new the full size iPad is going to get an A7 of some sort, and so if it's going to have the A7, it seems like why not put the touch sensor in there? Unless, yeah, that's a good point. Unless they're really supply constrained on those touch sensors, which I don't know. I mean, it's it's one of those things where it's you know Tim Cook and like two other people now. Right. But but I think though that the full size iPad I think so far has remained roughly in in parallel to the top of the line iPhone in terms of major advances. 
Although it didn't get Siri at first, but that's that was more of a software thing. Yeah, that was I think more Siri being beta. Yeah, like probably server load reasons. Yeah. Although starting out on the brand new iPhone is probably not an easy way in for your servers. It's not like an easy ramp up there. Yeah, definitely not. Um, but one reason for me, and I know a lot of readers of Daring Farball have like just randomly emailed me or tweeted me the same exact thing, which is that they bought an iPhone 5S, and within like 48 hours, every time they go to unlock their iPad, they're just holding their thumb on the thing, and they're like, hey, what's going on? And then they realize, oh. <laughs> and so, I mean, I'm not saying that they make product decisions based on experience like that, but you know within Apple, they've been using, you know, the the iPhone 5S internally for a while and have surely had the same experience inside Apple, you know, that, Hey, now that I, you know, unlock my phone this way, I'm, I can't get used to not unlocking my phone this way. And so I don't know. I feel like it's addictive enough that, that it would might push them to put it in, in the first year. Yeah. I'd say it'll probably be there, but I wouldn't say it's a sure thing. I'll also bet though, that, However few, and I know they said what it was more than half of all smartphones don't have a passcode. I don't. I can't even imagine what the percentage of iPads that don't have a passcode is. Yeah, and for you know, it, it's you know, there's actually some logic behind that. You're a lot less likely to you know leave a bigger thing behind in a cab or something like that. You know, it's you know, a phone could fall out of a pocket in theory. Uh, an iPad is a lot less likely to fall out of your pocket. But, you know, it's still, uh, you know, when I travel, I, I always have to remember to do that. When I keep it at home, I, I turn the passcode off. But then when I travel, I, I turn a passcode on my iPad. Yeah, I, I think, even, I think I yes. I thought about that. <laughs> no, you don't do that? Well, because my iPad usually, well, I guess, <laughs> what could possibly happen to this thing that I leave in my hotel room when I go out all day? But, <laughs> yeah, as a matter of fact, that might be worth considering. <laughs> I wish I've said this before. I wish that they would do something where um, you could you could name a safe Wi-Fi network and say yeah. that when when you're on this Wi-Fi network, prompt for the passcode the first time since you know you were away from it, out of the range of this Wi-Fi. So the first time you so it, it could just be your phone. You leave the house, you go somewhere, you come home, you need to unlock your phone. Because you just came home. And then until you leave that Wi-Fi network, just stay unlocked. I think that, that would actually be really good. Because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to think of like all the different ways that could fail or be hacked. And, and making it prompt the first time you join it or like every time you rejoin that network, I think that's pretty solid. Right. Because that way, if somebody stole your iPhone but then stood outside the front door of your house, it wouldn't automatically unlock. I think the problem is like when when the phone's in your pocket for an hour and you don't even take it out at all. Pretty sure it disconnects from your Wi-Fi network. Yeah, see, that might be the that might be the the that might be the the, the killer. Might be you know maybe just tying it to Wi-Fi might be wrong. It might just be the uh, you know the basic location services thing. And even if it falls to the um, the wider geofence, the low, you know, we've been the phone's been sleeping for a while, and it gets a little sloppier in terms of the precision of the geofence to keep the battery, you know, from from draining too fast. Even that might be close enough. I think the other problem is like, how annoying would it be if every time you took your phone into your pocket, you'd have to like kind of think about whether you need to unlock it or not. 
Hmm. Like if if it becomes like you have to unlock it a quarter of the time instead of most of the time. Yeah. Like that's that's a little weird. Yeah, and maybe that's the maybe I'm overthinking it too now that Touch ID is out because maybe Touch ID is the answer, which is put a Touch ID sensor in and then you don't have to worry. I don't know. I, I still I find Touch ID a little bit too much effort to be convenient. Like when I'm like I, I used it when I went to Singleton, uh, which all the cool people were at. Uh, I used it when I went there and uh, for the first time, and and it worked out great. But as soon as I got in the car to drive home, I turned it off. Oh, really? Yeah, and when- because I, you know, like because I was I was like using my phone to play podcasts in the car using my new podcast app, and uh, which almost works. <laughs> it's it's always fun using a beta app while driving, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and like even just you know just common things like unlocking my phone to like to do something quick in the app, you know, when I'm like stopped at a rest stop or just it, it was so inconvenient to have to unlock it every single time uh, that. It was just not worth it. So you but don't keep your when phone. I was at the you don't keep your phone locked. Only when I'm now. I'm only doing it like when I'm out, like at conferences or something. Because normally, huh. like I'm, I'm in my house all day. Huh. You know, huh. like who's going to steal my phone with the people at the deli? Like there's, there's not. Yeah. My, I, I'm, I'm one of those like compulsive pocket people that like I never leave my phone or my wallet like on the table anywhere. I, I never even take them out. Really, like when I'm out. My phone and my wallet and my keys stay in my pockets. All right, either either in pocket or in hand at all times. Right, like yeah. it's never it's never out of my physical possession. And yeah, somebody could pickpocket me in New York, but I don't live in the city. I I only go to the city like once every three months. Like I'm hardly ever even in the city. <laughs> and you know, so yeah, so like when I travel, maybe when I go to the city, I'll turn it on. But day to day life, I'm sitting in my house, and I don't really need to constantly be unlocking my phone. Let me take a break here tell you about our first sponsor. It's our good friends, Backblaze. Not to be confused with, uh, I think I think the last time they sponsored this show, I, I said Black Bays. I forget what it was, but That's whatever I mispronounced, enough. whatever I mispronounced, it ends up that uh, Backblaze had registered that URL. Are you sure it's not Backblaze? <laughs> it could be back, Backblaze. What do they do? It is unlimited, unthrottled, Backup for your Mac uh, for $5 a month, which is a ridiculous price. What can you do once you've started using it? You can access all of your computer's backed up data anywhere with their iOS app and web interface. So in other words, you back up your stuff with Backblaze. You're out. Take out your iPhone app. You can get to everything on your computer. You can restore when you need to one file at a time or all your files easily. So if there's like one file you needed threw it out and mistakenly you got to get it back you can use backblaze just to get that file back i've actually done that it's really good like you like if you like i, I forgot a, a spreadsheet on on vacation I, like i was out somewhere I, want, I needed to get a spreadsheet off my computer it wasn't in dropbox or anything and so i just i went to backblaze and i downloaded just that one file it worked great if you drop your computer into a toilet or something like that trash the whole hard drive water leak or something like that somebody steals your macbook uh you need to restore everything or uh, hard drive failure, of course. Probably the most common reason that we back up. Uh, you can restore everything easily. It's founded by ex-Apple engineers. And I, I, that's a good talking point because to me, as soon as you say that, to me that says, okay, their Mac software is going to be legit. You're not installing some kind of janky thing written by people who mostly write Windows. 
Uh, it's already Mavericks ready. So that also tells you just how uh, Apple friendly they are. There's no add-ons, no gimmicks, no additional charges. It's just a simple deal. You pay $5 a month per computer and you get unlimited unthrottled backup. It's super simple, easy to use, and uh, you just install it and then everything is automatic. Oh, where do you go? Let me give you the URL. That would help, right? www.backblaze.com slash daringfireball. That's the other thing that's memorable about Backblaze. Their code for the show is Daring Fireball as opposed to the talk show or talk show. So don't, don't, don't miss out on that. That way they'll know you came from here. That's good. That avoids the ambiguity of whether the the is included. Exactly. I don't like to put the sponsors down who don't put the the in their code. I won't do that. They're a sponsor. I thank them. You know, I, I appreciate it. I don't care what they – they could say the code is, uh, the, you know, Gruber's a dummy, and I'd still read it. But if you do put the the in, I like to, I like to compliment you for it. Attention to detail. Yeah. Backblaze.com slash Daring Fireball. Love them. Uh, so I, I don't, maybe that covers iPads for next week, I think, right? Ret- Retina for the mini and a new smaller, thinner case for the big one and maybe Touch ID. You know, I don't even, I don't even expect the big one to get that much lighter because it is a really large Retina screen. It's going to have a high-powered CPU with a high-powered GPU. I'm guessing it's probably it's going to be smaller, like physically smaller, but I bet it's not going to be that much lighter because most of that weight is the battery. Yeah, we'll see. I don't know. It's, it certainly would be Apple-like to focus on that. Yeah, I would love to see it happen. This is one of the things I'd love to, love to be proven wrong on that. Yeah. Uh, there's got to be some Mac news next week, too. I expect at very least, in the same way that um, uh, Federighi was called up by Tim Cook to to rehash, you know, what's new in iOS 7. And here's, you know, the eight or ten features that, that they thought was most important, and he kind of ran through them in about ten minutes. I would expect the same thing with Mavericks, where they're going to, for you know, and they're, you know, it's good marketing. You, you repeat your message, you know, I think, but I think it's going to be mostly, you know, here's everything they told us about back at WWDC. They're going to tell it to us again more concisely. Uh, I definitely expect that, and I expect, you know, Clearly, I mean, it, since they've already shipped a G, something called a GM to developers, it, it's probably coming soon. I don't know if it's going to be released next week, but if not next week, I would expect a week later at the latest. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if they – because the event's, what, like on Tuesday or something? Yeah. wouldn't surprise me if it's available Friday. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. That's probably my guess is the event is Tuesday, and then Friday it hits the App Store right. for people to you know buy and download. Because they already told developers to submit their apps like almost a week ago now, and so I, I that that to me says this is it. Because like with iOS, they give you about a week. <laughs> they they release the GM, they say submit your apps to the App Store with the GM SDK today, and then a week later it comes out. Yeah, that's and what I so think. I'm, I'm guessing they're right on the edge. Here. What is that? I think that's Friday the 25th. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, that's my bet. Uh, I can't help but think since they also at WWDC pre-announced the Mac Pro and said it was coming this year, I can't help but think it's going to be it's going to be at the you know this thing next week and whether it goes on sale immediately or you know I, I'm guessing the Mac Pro is never going to run 10.8. It's you know there's you know they don't that's usually when they release hardware and a new OS at the same time. The hardware is tied to that OS. Uh, so I don't know if it'll be available for sale, you know, 
immediately after the show is over or like in a couple of days. But I expect that the new Mac Pro is going to go on sale and that they'll be Although pro- weirdly they did just release new iMacs like not that long ago that didn't come with 10.9 obviously because that's not out right. yet. Right. That was a little bit odd timing on that. Yeah, I I guess, you know, I guess there's always a fine line to balance between, you know, what they want to hold for an event and what they want to just release as it's ready. I wonder if, you know, the the MacBook Air being released in in June, that probably has a lot to do with back-to-school buying. And so the iMac being released like a month ago or whenever that was, Mm. I wonder if that has to do with like school budgets or something like that. Maybe, but I was always under the impression that schools, especially like uh, K-12, do most of their purchasing in like April and May for the next year. That it's yeah, a so it's, it's a months in advance sort of before the summer break, you know that that when and that the the, the if there was any product that was sort of t- timed to that schedule, it was the old iPads. The first couple of years where they would come out in April, that that was education buying season. So I don't know, but on the other hand, I think. Like that's institutional education. There's also the back to school angle of, hey, you know, my 18 year old is going to college and needs a needs a computer. Right, but, but I think like you know the the airs were timed well for that. The IMAX were too late for that. Yeah, I think so too. And I think the percentage of college students today going with like an IMAX style desktop computer has got to be like single digits. I think you know. Oh yeah, I, I think everyone has laptops at this right. point. I mean, even I, when I was in college, 12 years ago. Well, 10, 13 years ago? Yeah. When I was in college forever ago, I was one of the only people there with a desktop. Hmm. I mean, that, and that was, that was forever ago. I mean, it's only been going more and more laptop-heavy since then. Yeah, so I think I think maybe, it'd be weird if you brought a desktop today. I think it maybe, was weird then. I think maybe the I, iMacs coming out when they did was just a factor of um, that, the, you know, it's just a speed bump. Nothing new. Because they came out, they were announced at last year's October event, the the right. the one that was in in San Jose. Um, well, Intel's also been staging out the uh, new CPU releases. I, I mean, it, it they came out pretty soon after the CPUs were available from Intel that it uses, mm-hmm. and uh, so maybe I mean it looks like the entire roadmap might just be being dictated by Intel releasing you know the low voltage CPUs and then the desktop CPUs and and the Mac Pro like the CPUs that the Mac Pro is going to use are not out yet for anybody else. Like you can't buy a workstation from Dell with that CPU today. So, hmm. you know, it seems like maybe maybe everything's just waiting on that. Here's a big one tied to the Mac Pro. And I know you 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 guys spoke about it on the Accidental Tech Pro podcast a couple times. Everybody's talking about it though. 4K cinema displays. You oh, just God, mentioned it earlier in this show. I think that they've got to do it. I do. I mean, I guess got to is maybe a little strong, but I really, I can't help but think if they're going to come out with this fancy new Mac Pro and and spend the time to make cool commercials for it and stuff and and go with the Syracusean, you know, it's the race car in the lineup. Right. Uh, and it's capable of driving three 4K displays at the same time. Well, why wouldn't they want to sell a 4K display then to be one of the, you know, the 4K display you hook up to it, even if it's ungodly expensive, right? Because they, they, that's the thing is I think that they're going with the Mac Pro is it's really, they're putting the Pro back in Pro where it really is, you know, they can charge a lot more because they've got these consumer level products that are a lot lower priced and are great, right? The iMac is a great desktop computer. It has a beautiful display 
And the MacBook Air is a great laptop, and it has a good display. So they can charge a lot more or some sort of premium for devices with retina displays. And, you know, if you think, well, I don't know what, what do you think like a 4K Apple cinema display might run? Oh, man. It, well, it depends on the size and the density, too. You know, like if, if they just took the 27-inch the approximate size, like the, what they sell now, give that 4K resolution, and I, and I think it comes pretty close to retina. You know, it's not quite, it's not a doubling of that display today, but it's, it's like, it's near a doubling. <laughs> and yeah, so it's close enough. Like I, things on screen would have to be bigger. Just, just like the same thing with the 15-inch laptops. They can call it retina, though, by, by just fudging the distance of where, where, how far away your eyes are from the <laughs> the the device right. i think that a retina and i don't even you know i think by their definition of what retina means i think that's actually not even like marketing trickery i think it's fair like yeah you know people tend tend to be about an arm's length away from a, a desktop display right so i i think if i mean and you can look there already are a few 4k displays in the market today um and most of them are like 32 inch size like they're they're bigger if apple is able to get good panel deals and is able to make a 27 inch at 4K resolution. First of all, I'd buy it in a heartbeat. I might even <laughs> buy two of them. God knows. Second of all, um, I would guess that's a $3,000 display. And that's that's why I think they probably won't do it yet. See, I think maybe... Why not? Why not Well, it? if you look historically, when when the original 30-inch sim, cinema display came out, I believe the, the initial price was $3,500. It was over $3,000. And, and that was, what, like 2005 or something? It was, it was a long time ago. But um, that was back when Apple was still, like, Apple could release a $3,000 monitor and nobody would care. But Apple's a different company today. You know, not, not entirely different, but everything they sell is under, is really designed much more for the mass market and, and is under much more scrutiny. And they, they try to bring those prices, the entry prices, down over time. And so you could, you could really, you could make a good argument that maybe they won't do a retina desktop display at $3,000. Maybe they'll just wait until that can be 1200 bucks and do it then. Yeah. Which is I, certainly not this year. It's possible, but I, I tend to think, no, because I, I think the whole idea of the Mac Pro is, it, I would have been more amenable to that argument before they unveiled the Mac Pro at WWDC because the new Mac Pro to me says we're serious about selling um, really expensive high-end stuff. Yeah, I could see that. For the Mac, the professional Mac market. I think what what will be telling also, if for some reason at the event they announce new Retina MacBook Pros, but they don't announce a new cinema display for whatever reason, I think it will be interesting to see. I would assume the new Retina MacBook Pros will have Thunderbolt 2 ports. And you can look at the Mac Pro, and Thunderbolt 2 is the update to Thunderbolt that's fast enough to support resolutions like 4K. The Thunderbolt 1 can't, or at least not at a good frame rate. So... The Mac Pro, there's there's good reasons for that to have Thunderbolt 2 that aren't a monitor. You can argue that Mac Pro users might be using those ports for future like high-end RAID arrays and like kind of like to kind of replace like fiber channel cards and stuff like that, like you know, high-end I.O. There's a lot less of a need for that on a modern Retina MacBook Pro, on a modern laptop. Unless the main reason Thunderbolt 2 is there is to drive giant retina displays. And th- so I think if the laptop comes out with Thunderbolt 2 port, I think Retina displays are not that far behind. Yeah. I would like to see them next week. So you think we're going to see new MacBook Pros next week too? 
Yeah, because we, I mean, it, that was another thing. Intel didn't release those CPUs yet in June, so I think that's one of the reasons we didn't see it then. Right. But um, I'm guessing we see, uh, my ideal scenario is, I don't care about the iPad, they can do whatever they want. My ideal scenario, <laughs> I would love to see a Retina Mini, that's about it. My ideal scenario for, for what we get next week is Retina MacBook Pro update with Thunderbolt 2. Mac Pro, you know, announcement, like price and chip date, and you can go and pre-order it now, even if we can't get it immediately. And Retina Cinema Display is released at the same time with them. That would be my ideal event. However, if you look at where the technology is for those Retina displays, where the pricing is, where the economics work out for those giant panels, I, I don't, I'm not that confident that we're going to get them this year. I, I think we might still be another year out in there. So I would say that the chances of getting a Retina Display are like 50% maybe. You know, not, not great chances. I just I don't know. I, I'm going to put it higher than that. I'm going to say I'm going to say it's like a, a two out of three chance that they that they come out with a new 4K cinema display to go along with it, and it, it might be, but it, but it probably would be like three thousand dollars each. The other thing is if they make like a thir- like a big one, like a 32 inch 4K, that is kind of too big to be Retina at that resolution. So they'd have to get it small. They'd have to like use the 27 inch size at that resolution to really get that to be meaningful. Hmm. But we'll see what happens. I, I, I would. I really hope that I'm proven wrong on almost everything I just said, um, just because I'm, I'm predicting things fairly conservatively in that regard, and so I'd love to be proven wrong on that. So we'll see. Uh, what about iPods? I, I, I could see them releasing new iPods, but I, I know two years ago they didn't. They went two years, you know, without re- refreshing them, and it wouldn't fit. And even if it's not for next week. Here's this just a, a basic idea, just just a what if. Like, let me just throw a wild card at you. Is what about something that's more like an iPod Nano, but actually running iOS? That's interesting. I mean, you could kind of argue that they they almost like accidentally created the smartwatch movement by right. the old Nano just happened to be watch sized, kind of, and having a wrist strap that somebody made in Kickstarter. Like, you can kind of argue like. That that would be an interesting way to get into that that wearables area that everyone's talking about, right? Like I, I, I with some of these smartwatches that have come out, it's like I forget which one I said it about, but it's like if you're not more elegant and look better on the wrist than a two year old iPod Nano that was never designed to be worn as a watch on your wrist, then you've got a problem. Right. If you're designing a product that that is specifically a watch. I here's why I, I'll tell you the one thing the reason I would like an iPod Nano that runs iOS is for one thing one thing only and that's podcasts. Is I would like to be able to just set up an iPod Nano size thing and just have that be the only place where I manage my podcasts. Or in theory, like if you, you know, if it were really running iOS and you could have apps running on it, then somebody like, say, you could come out with a version of your app that ran on that too, and it would sync between that and your phone. You know, syncing would be great if it, you know, if there's multiple versions of a podcast app. But all I want is an iPod that automatically, without me plugging it into anything other than occasionally charging it, just is up to date with podcasts. See, I, I think. First of all, I think there's a big issue with battery life on, on in a watch. And so I don't think we're anywhere near running a full-featured OS like iOS on a watch. I, still, I think that the display is the biggest power grab. 
I mean, yeah, I, probably. But also radios would be a power grab. Right. Um, so I, I, I think if Apple goes into the watch area, whether it's with just like kind of a boosted up nano or, or whether it's a separate product, uh, I think if they go into the watch area, I think it's just going to be like a satellite device for your phone, for your iPhone. Or, you know. Right, and I say iOS, and it could be that it's just more iOS-like, and it's still running the the Pixo OS or whatever that is the embedded thing that the iPods still run, but has some more features like that, like um, maybe instead of you know wi- Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and something else, maybe it's just Bluetooth, but it uses the Bluetooth 4.0 low energy, and a, an iOS companion app can just push those podcasts to it. Right, or the watch does not store all the podcasts on it. The watch is more like a Bluetooth headset. It's like it just it can receive the audio from your iPhone. Hmm. And I think you're. Right. I think that you know if Apple were to release a watch today, I think it's pretty obvious that Bluetooth four low energy would be its main communication protocol, and it might even be its only radio. And if you think about like what would make an awesome smartwatch, you can argue you know the case you go outside and exercise right. I do sometimes. Okay, well, I'm not familiar with that world. I know a lot of people do that, and a lot of people don't bring their phones because they don't want to drop them or damage them, or that you know, That's sports me. sports clothes don't really have deep, secure pockets. Right. So, um, I run buck naked. Yeah, well, I mean, you might as well. The pockets on most running shorts are terrible. So <laughs> it's the same thing. Uh, so th- there's that market of you know people who want to exercise who don't want to have their phone on them, and so obviously a smartwatch in that kind of context would be less useful the way I'm describing it, but. You know, I think Apple's whole thing with the digital hub, with the Mac being the digital hub back, I don't know, 15 years ago now, whenever that was. Uh, the thing is, that was a great idea, and that was correct for the time. Overall, though, now, especially the modern era, that, that was correct, but the digital hub is now the phone. Right. Your smartphone is your digital hub for everything now. B- because it's, it's with you all the time. Right. Like, you know, now I'm obviously very into the podcast uh, thing now, and... You know, my theory has always been, you know, people ask me if I'm going to do, like, if, like Stitcher is a popular client, and they, they go and work with all the car manufacturers to try to get car integration for Stitcher so that you can, like, run Stitcher, like, right on your head unit or have your phone, like, plug into your car and everything. And, and I, I think the market for that is pretty limited, and I think that's not, it's not a great use of effort because ultimately, the, like, the best way to listen to podcasts in your car is to, is to just use a phone that can play audio over Bluetooth and have your car, you know, a lot of cars now are getting Bluetooth. It's filtering down pretty well into even lower-end models. And so, like, the, the audio in the car problem is now being solved, and it's just your phone playing things over Bluetooth. Internet in the car is the same way. Like, p- car manufacturers try to put internet connectivity in the cars, and, and yeah. really the best way to do it is to just have internet on your phone and maybe at best have your car tether with your phone. You know, that maybe, maybe we'll go there in the future. But ultimately, like, the phone is the center of everything now. It's, it's where you have the data connection. I, I don't think we're going to see a future where everything has its own data radio. I think the, I think the carriers are going to block that worldwide pretty effectively or make it really uh, infeasible economically for customers. Um, Wait, what are they going to make unfeasible? Having like a billion devices that you own all have their own cell radios oh, and yeah, all their own yeah. data connections. Like, I don't ah. think we're going to see that for a long time, if ever. Uh, you know, ultimately, I think again, everything's going through the phone right now. That's the way to do it. It's really powerful. It's very. It's 
that's where the market is. That, that that's what the market is doing. Whether whether it's technologically ideal or conceptually ideal, that's what the market is doing. So, for a smartwatch to just be a phone accessory, basically to just be a window into the data on your phone, and for it to use all the radios on your phone except for the one super low power Bluetooth LE one, uh, you know that would that it would have itself. Like you know, a watch with GPS that would never work because the batteries are way too small. You know, so you can look at all that stuff. I think a watch that any smartwatch that comes out in the next couple of years that's actually good is probably going to have that kind of design. And so whether Apple's going to have like you know your dream podcast set up, I don't think that's going to be it. I think it's going to be you're going to play podcasts on your phone and play it through your watch if that's what you really want, or you're just going to ignore that capability and just play it with headphones on your phone. I don't know. I just can't help but think that there's got to be a way for the thing to and and you know I I. And this is really pushing it to say that what if it was really more like a full iPod touch but just shrunk to that nano size um, and it had Wi-Fi uh, too, that would – it would make it work. It would make it usable with iTunes radio. I mean, and I, you know, who knows? Is, is iTunes radio something they see as that important that they would engineer the devices to be able to support it? I, I don't know. But – it just seems, That's a good question. It just seems to me, though, that like maybe we collectively have all sort of taken our eyes off the iPod lineup in terms of the p- potential for future improvements, and that they're, you know, you couldn't make it much smaller, right? That's like the iPod Nano. If you're going to put a screen on a device, there's not, you know, not much room there for, you know, more than a finger. It's already so small that you kind of wish it was bigger so it was easier to use. And easier not I'd be less likely to lose it. Like I my right. my iPod Nano is literally as I speak it's been lost for like 4 days somewhere <laughs> hopefully here in my office but um but I feel like maybe now that they've shrunk it to that size now they can use, you know, advances in technology and battery life and stuff like that to get it to do more on the software, maybe put some little antennas in there. I don't know, just I just something to spitball, I think. Maybe I I just I don't see it happening. Just you know, radios are so power hungry, and watches are so small. And like they're, to make a, I mean, like have you see, do you have a Pebble or have you seen one? I do have a Pebble. It's ridiculously big. Yeah. Like it, when you see it on somebody's wrist, unless they're like a giant football player, it looks like it, it's it's like the modern calculator watch. It is. I have it, actually have it right here in my hand as I speak. It and it's it's big, but it's there. Actually, are a lot bigger watches on the market today. Like men's wristwatches, the trend over the last couple of years has been to get bigger, and some of them are actually preposterously big, um, way bigger than a Pebble. So it's not just size alone, but it's Samsung. <laughs> if you just go and look at like, uh, just go to the mall and look at like a watch store, and just you know, go look at a jewelry store and look at some of the men's watches. You'll see some that are really pretty, a lot bigger than a Pebble. But it looks, it it doesn't sit right on the wrist, you know. I mean, and and the ones that are real big are you know watches as jewelry. They're they're big right. for the, you know, they're purposefully big. It's not that they couldn't make them smaller. It's you know, it's you're you're showing off that you have this watch. You know, it's jewelry. Whereas the pebble is is just big. I don't Do you think know. it's possible to make a smartwatch that doesn't to make a smartwatch that looks as nice fashion wise as like a jewelry watch? I know in some ways because jewelry watches are made out of materials like stainless steel or, or even higher end gold. Um, 
Well, I guess you could make one out of that. I mean, it could be a smartwatch with, you know, or like a, you know, a, uh, certainly Apple works a lot with aluminum that has more of a, a refined metallic appearance. But it's one of the things where if you call it a watch, this is one of the reasons where I'm tossing out what if they what if they really push the the borders on what we think an iPod can do, like an iPod Nano, not iPod Touch, like an iPod Nano can do, is has been the way that I've been sort of thinking in my head of what could this so-called iWatch do, because what's the difference other than whether it's on a strap that goes on your wrist or not? What we're talking about are little, roughly inch-sized peripherals to your iPhone, right? It's yeah. the same thing. And so what, you know, why not make one that doesn't even have a strap that you clip on for people who don't want to wear it on a wrist or whatever? Um, I think the problem with calling it a watch in particular, and, and to me, if they came out with a thing and it was just called the, the new iPod Nano, and in fact, it, it has all of these or, or some of these smart watch style integration, Bluetooth back and forth features makes a lot more sense marketing wise. Cause you can sell and everybody knows what an iPod is and they cost like 200, 250, $300, depending on the size. And they can just put that right in there and it'll just sell Better than, you know, the two-year-old iPod Nano we have now sells. Whereas if they call it a watch, it's they run into this re- – it's a really hard market because most people who do wear, wear a wristwatch, I'm guessing probably spend somewhere around 50 to to $100 on their watch. Like that's like a typical price for uh, like a watch. If you just go to Amazon and search for watches, you see a lot of watches, you know, 50 bucks, you know, like a – you know, that's like what people pay. But like the, I haven't bought a watch since eighth grade. But a, a a high-end watch costs thousands of dollars, right? Like a new watch like from Omega or Rolex or one of those type companies is is two, three, four thousand dollars at the low end of their lines. And you know, it goes up from there depending on, you know, whether it's made of gold or stuff like that. So how do they make a watch? Like when is the last time Apple's ever made a product that isn't the best of whatever it is on the on the market? At least in some people's minds. I well, there there are those like solid gold blackberries from that V company. What? Virtu. Yeah, there's those. I mean, you know, they, is is that a fair parallel? I think it is in some sense because I think the thing with Virtu is that what what the iPhone revealed with Virtu, Virtu, whatever you want to pronounce it, wasn't that they were making actual luxury cell phones. Is that they were pantomiming luxury cell phones. They faked it with just literally putting a, a luxurious shell around a $15 Nokia uh, Symbian phone, that it wasn't actually luxurious. Whereas when you buy a Rolex and you spend five, $6,000 or whatever on it, you're getting a watch that truly has, by all accounts, an exquisite mechanical movement inside. It's not just that you're paying for the brand and you get a nice gold exterior around the same internals as a you know a fifty dollar watch from Amazon. You know, it really is a nice. Now, whether it's worth you know spending that money on, it's obviously it's it's something that appeals just to people who are you know into watch, collecting watches and stuff like that. It's not like it keeps better time, but it it is in in a in a sense to some people clearly a superior product. Whereas the Virtu was not. It was never actually a better product. It was literally just the exact same internal guts as phones that Nokia sold for like 15 bucks. Right. So, I don't know. I mean, do you think there's, do you think there's any way that Apple could even compete in that high-end watch market? Or do you, I mean, no, because it that, seems see, like that would be the wrong goal. Right. Because even though, and I feel like it's different 
from, say, selling a $3,000 4K monitor, which is only meant for like, you know, professional developers and film editors and photographers and, you know, graphic designers and stuff like that, people who really, you know, need pro tools. Whereas a, a watch or an iPod, there is no pro line. You're not, you can't come out with a pro version of the watch that costs $4,000 because it looks as nice as, as a, a Rolex. Maybe Virtu will. Yeah. I, that's why I think it's better to think about Apple's entry in this as, as some kind of iPod. Or even just call it iPod Watch. I don't know. But I mean, certainly, way, even if they don't even call it a watch, even if they just let the iPod Nano, you know, give it a Bluetooth 4 radio. Right. Let it show notifications from your iPhone if you want it to. Right. And, you know, like, let it, let it do some basic interaction with your iPhone and then just keep it small and squarish and, and sell yeah. a, a watch band accessory for it. Right. An armband accessory for right, it. Right. Right. And, like, in the same way that they've designed the smart covers to be integrated, you know, it's part of the right. whole development. It wasn't just something they came up with at the end. The whole process of developing it was meant for that. It might be designed from the get-go to have a wrist strap. Because it's, it's entirely possible that the smartwatch market is just non-existent. Like it's it's entirely like we 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 as the tech industry have been have been talking about this forever, but it's very possible that nobody wants these things, and I so that would, that would kind of be a way for Apple to like dip their toe in it very gently and in a way that if it doesn't sell well, it's not like a massive PR problem for them forever. Yeah, and I think that it's sort of in a way marketing wise the and I know I know don't, nobody has to write in. I know they filed a whole bunch of trademarks around the world for an iWatch. And let me just digress here for a second and say that I, I have received – I think this might be one of the most common – single most common emails I've received over the last like five months, which is what if iWatch has nothing to do with a wristwatch, but it's actually the name of the new Apple TV because get it, iWatch, you watch the TV. Right. Uh, well, also like you can't, you can't keep a trademark in most conditions without using it after a while. Like you can mm. – you can pre-file it, but not that far before you start using it, and other and you have to use it otherwise you lose it. Like it's possible they could have filed them filed those trademarks defensively, so that no one else could create something called the iWatch. That see, that's what I think they did, and here's the reason but why then they're going to have to use it for something. Well, let's for or or at least it would keep people from coming out with an iWatch soon, right? Right. Like Apple comes out with a thing, and at least for the next two years or whatever the limit is on those trademarks, nobody come out with an iWatch. And by the time their unused iWatch trademark expires, it's too late because they've already you know dominated the market with the product that did come out with under a different name. But anyway, here's the thing about the iWatch being uh, right underneath our noses, the name of the Apple TV product. The trademark applications that they filed around the world, that you can't just, you don't just file a name. You have to say what it does, and they all say something about you know that it's a, a watch. Right. Yeah. Trademark. Like you. Yeah. You're right. Like you have to because you could release something called the iWatch that's a watch, and then somebody else could make like a piece of industrial equipment that makes bread called the iWatch, and it, it, that would not be a likely conflict. Right. You know, Apple is still going like, to contact you. have to specify <laughs> sure. But like you but, have to specify when right. you file a trademark like what like what areas it's being used in and the trademark office at least in the US tries to push that to be as narrow as possible. Yeah. So no, I do not th- I think there's zero chance that iWatch is actually Apple TV or some kind of TV product even, you know, that and I and I feel like it's it's not even a good name for that. I think everybody who's come up with that you're being you're you're overthinking it. It's too clever. No, it, it wouldn't. It wouldn't work right as the name of an app uh, of a product you watch on TV. 
they've also never uh, never used the I prefix. Have they ever used it as a verb like that? No. No, and I think that it's another reason that they wouldn't... Uh, it's kind of weird. Yeah. Um, Which is why people say you shouldn't say I touch. I don't hear Sounds as many creepy. people saying that anymore, but maybe it's because I don't see many people using iPod. Oh, they're anyway. they're all in the Apple Store. <laughs> Where's the iTouch? That's <laughs> uh, horrible. I do think, though, and I think just circling back a minute or two to something you said about the name and setting the expectations, I feel like it's almost the opposite problem with iPhone, where we all know now, and a lot of us realized early on that the iPhone wasn't really a phone. It was a little pocket computer, and it you know it just had phone features. You know that the brilliance of it was that they've taken all of all of being a cell phone and just turned it into two apps: phone and messages, or like three if you count contacts. Right? That they just took these phone features and including making phone calls, and now it's just an app on this general purpose device. But calling it the iPhone really helped pave the way for why, you know, just entering the market and why people would want one because people already, the world, the Western world was already all set on, you know, I'm, I need a cell phone. I buy a new one every two years. Um, and it, it framed it well. Whereas I feel like some kind of smart iPod style size thing that even if you wear it on your watch, calling it a watch sets up all of these wrong expectations that you don't want to, enter the market with that name i think but you know i could be wrong I'm, I'm terrible at guessing apple product names yeah i mean and they also you know a lot of times they will they will choose the name that the market wants it to be called like the iphone 5 which i'm right. still mad about <laughs> oh because you thought it should have been iphone 6 well it's just it wasn't the fifth iphone right the iphone 4 was the fourth iphone that made sense the iphone 5 was not the fifth iphone yeah. and the whole public was like for years when the 4S was released, this wasn't a real iPhone 5. We want an iPhone 5. So the next year, Apple gave them something called the iPhone 5, and they complained a little bit less. <laughs> and it just felt like giving in to me. <laughs> that would be, like, someday, as, like, a wouldn't it be great, like, it would be great, like, 10, 15 years from now to, like, get, like, Phil Schiller and just and do, like, a, it, would, it probably wouldn't be, like, a big book, but you could do, like, a little mini ebook. And just do a book just just based on how they you know the fights they had over product names for like twenty or thirty years because you know that there were you know people have pointed that out within Apple it wasn't like somebody you know they oh, yeah. just said iPhone five and didn't think about it um, but like just look at the fact like the way things are now where they've iPhone still gets a number every year but then it gets an S some years and the whole iPhone five C doesn't make a lot of sense either. Because it, at least up until the 5C, the, when they had, you know, with the 4 and a 4S and the 3G and the 3GS, at least it meant they were case compatible, that it was the same form factor. And that's why they're not bumping the number. So that if you found a case that fit your iPhone 4 and now you have an iPhone 4S, you could just stick it right in. And with the iPhone 5S, you can put it in. Whereas the iPhone 5C, it has that name, but it breaks that. It's an all-new form factor. It doesn't make any sense at all. I think it's that they, they want the name to just make sense today. And right. they don't really care if it makes sense historically. Right. You know, like, so, you know, they, the iPhone 5 came out fine. Like, that's why I think next year, I think we're going to have, if they decide to use the number 6, which 
I don't know. A lot of cultures find it unlucky, and so maybe they'll skip it. I don't know. But if they decide to use the number six, uh, then I think we're going to have the iPhone six and the iPhone six C. Even though there was like the six C would kind of be like the five S's internals in something called the six C. Like it, it, it doesn't make logical sense, right? Like historically, but if you just look at the product line as it will probably exist next year, and you figure there's going to be a cheaper plastic one and a nice metal one. It's probably going to be the six and the six C. I was th- see. I was thinking maybe the six and the five CS. I don't know. I mean, they they've already with the five S. They've already like ruined everyone's minds and editors and typists or just have no idea what to do. Yeah. Uh, so the five having another one that ends in S, I guess, wouldn't be that bad. But I just I don't see it happening because that would make it look old. I think next year. But at the same know. time, at the, with the 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 siblings in the lineup, the iPads, they've dropped, you know, the numbers, and it's just iPad. And Did they? It, well, because there there was iPad third generation. Well, yeah, they, but it, it, first it was the new iPad. But it was <laughs> when they came out with what we all call the iPad three. They just said, "Here it is, the new iPad." It was right. just called the new iPad. And they then like they, awkwardly added iPad third generation and all the support documents. Right. And that's what they have to do. And they've always done for years and years and years <laughs> with Macs, ever since they stopped giving crazy names, you know, like the Mac 2FX and stuff like that to Macs. Right. You have like, you know, an early 2012 MacBook Air or something. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's, you know, cars, of course, do the same thing, you know, where, where the there's models, but they don't change every year when they're, you know, revamped, even though sometimes they're, you know, a total revamp. It's a, you know, it's a total do-over in a you know brand new car, but it still is just called a Honda Accord. It's just a 2011 model, 2013 or whatever. Uh, let's get back. We have a couple other things I want to talk about for the event next week, um, but let me take a break for the second sponsor. Sure. Our second sponsor is our friends at Fracture. You might remember them from a couple months ago when they first sponsored the show. What does Fracture do? One thing, and they do it great. You send them digital photos, and they print them directly on glass in vivid cover color. So they don't print, make a traditional print and then put it in a frame. They actually print the photo in color on glass. It's a picture, a frame, and a mount all in one. It's, it's incredibly clever. And it's one of those things you really have to see it to believe it because it really looks great. It just looks – it's you know some, in some ways, it's sort of like the way that when the retina screens came and that everything was closer to the front, it just looked cooler because you don't have that parallax of the thickness of the glass between it. That's what fr- fracture pictures look like. They really look great. You get – you send them the picture. You pay your money. You get a box that includes everything you need to get your photo on your wall, uh, put it on your desk. It's really great. They're a small team. They hand assemble every print right here in the USA, and they have a 30-day happiness guarantee and a lifetime warranty, right? So you get it. If you don't think it's cool, 30 days, you could just send it right back, and, and you get your money back. They have sizes starting at um, a 5 by 5 small square. I think that's new. I think that's new from the last time they sponsored. I think square photos, I think Instagram has totally made this like the new uh, aspect ratio for snapshots. It's 12 bucks for a 5x5 five five small square. And it goes all the way up to 22 by 29 which is huge. I mean, that's, that's, that's humongous. And that's their extra large. That costs $125. Uh, they're offering a promotion to talk show listeners. Coupon code, THETALKSHOW. With the THE. 
gets you 10% off your order. Uh, it's a great product. Where do you go to find out more? Go to their website, fracture.me. Go to fracture.me. Remember the code, the talk show and check them out. It's a great way to print things that you want printed. And it's a, makes for a, trust me, makes for a great gift. Family, family will just love it. Yeah, they actually sponsored my site a while back, and, and they sent me, or they, they let me pick one of these for free, and I, I put my own picture on it. I got like a nice big, it's like like a 9 by 13 or something like that, and it's above my desk. People compliment it all the time. It's it's really great. I'm, I'm a big fan. Yeah, it's really neat. And the packaging was amazing. It's like, I, I was shocked how, like, I was a little afraid shipping this big pane of glass, you know, through the mail. I'm like, oh, what if it arrives broken? And the packaging was awesome. Like, obviously, that doesn't, ha- <laughs> I bet they don't lose many of these. Uh and, they, and yeah, they really did include everything. It was nice. It was like instructions on how to open the box or ideal takeout. And it has it had like a little screw in there that you can mount it if you want. Like it was it was great. It is a serious packaging. It's like a yeah, like isn't a, it? It's like a real serious, well well thought out, almost like an origami, like cardboard arrangement that that secures the thing and buffers it against you know any kind of mishandling. Right. So you're not. You're not like. There's pretty much no way you'd like open the wrong end and it would fall out and shatter. Like that's. So exactly. They, they thought of that, and they 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 are preventing you from doing that. It's really great. Right. It is a de- it's clearly a detail oriented company. Oh yeah. Yeah. I can I can see why they've sponsored our our stuff. They know their audience. Uh, if it sounds cool to you, trust me, you're going to like it. They really do a great job. It's a great service. Uh, so what else could they do next week? Oh, well, they got to have some software, right? Something's got to be demoed. You can't have a device without software to demo. But they've already unveiled iOS 7. So yeah, it looks, you know, iOS is obviously different on an iPad than on an iPhone, but it's not that different. So I feel like they need apps to demo. Does yeah. iLife still exist on the, on the Mac? Can they, can they even do that with Mavericks or probably not? Are they I, still updating that? I wonder about the Mac. Here's, so here's what I think. I think they're going to do new iLife works for iOS and probably iWorks apps because they just made a big deal over you know, the fact that they're so they're like the most popular mobile office apps you know uh, on s- smartphones. I think they said in the keynote at WBDC. I think they said that an update to i to iWork for the Mac was coming, hmm. which was remember. news because you know they're still like the O nine apps. They're very old, long <laughs> in the tooth, and I still know. use them all the time. Like they still work just fine, but they really could use an update. Just new features. Uh, the, yeah, only they thing they great, the only thing they've modern. done since 2009 is add iCloud support, really. I mean, I mean right. I'm sure there's bug fixes and some minor things, but in terms of what you would actually think off the top of your head, it's just iCloud support. Right, it's still like the same features from all the way back then. The same, you know, like number still has all the same capabilities that it had back then, just plus iCloud, that's it. Uh, and I think that could make, if they did both iOS and Mac versions, and it doesn't seem, you might think like, well, you're asking for too much to hope that they did both. But on the other hand, it's been so many years since the Mac version had a major revision. It doesn't seem like you're asking for much. I mean, presumably they're, you know, they still have full-time teams who work on the iWork Mac apps. They've got to be, have been working on something. Maybe this is kind of the problem that Microsoft has with, with upgrade revenue in Office. Like, we haven't had a meaningful iWork update since 2009, and it's not that big of a problem. Like, it doesn't, like, I still use these apps. I still use, like, numbers almost every day, and I use Keynote, like, a couple times a year. And uh, I would like new features, but they still work just fine. And I, every time I use them, I don't notice, oh, my God, this is so old. Right. Whereas... Like, imagine Microsoft Office being released, like, every two or three years, like... Yeah. 
trying to ju- trying to get people to pay for that upgrade is probably a nightmare. They're like that's why they want to move to subscription stuff. Whereas the iOS versions look ancient because they look like iOS six apps, right? And you know, as time goes on, I mean, I think everybody agrees, even people who don't like iOS seven, don't like the the visual direction they went. I think even they have to acknowledge that the old apps still stick out like sore thumbs. So they, I feel like they almost have to have iOS versions of these apps. Are they even built with the seven SDK yet? Like, do, like do they do they show the seven keyboard? No, I don't think so. That's, that's right. Because yeah, like the like that that's the biggest problem. Like when I'm using Tweetbot, which doesn't have a seven update out yet. Um, like the keyboard, if you're like if you look at all the all the resource files in seven, it includes a complete copy of the entire UI from six, so it can run those apps like in their you know simulation mode for iOS six, and it sucks because the keyboard is just so slightly different between six and seven in a few ways, and it's enough that like once you're used to one, you make a bunch of typos in the other one. <laughs> have you found this to be the yeah? To be a I have problem? definitely, I have definitely found it to be a case. Yeah, like, it really type- sucks when an app is not updated for seven now because like anything with text input, because you 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 hit that problem hard. Yeah, and especially, uh, yeah, and Tweetbot's probably the one that I hit it the most in because that's probably the app where I type the most in a in an app that still has the old keyboard. Whereas a lot of my other typing on iOS is in messages and mail, and they're obviously they're built in, so they're updated. So that's where I've sort of acclimated to the new keyboard. Oh, and Safari, you know, typing in forms and Safari and stuff like that. So Tweetbot's keyboard really does get me every time. But yeah, besides that, besides like, you know, demoing iWork and maybe iLife for the Mac, on iOS, I don't I don't really see it happening. I mean, I like every year at the iPad event, they've brought out something new, right? Like was it last year that was iPhoto or was it the year before? There was like I, there was GarageBand, there was iPhoto like, you know, in, in these I'm previous movie. years iMovie, right? Right. Um, I don't know what they're going to do this year in that regard for the iPads. And maybe they, maybe they have so much stuff in this event. Like if they, if they really are going to, going to cram in MacBook Pro, Mac Pro, Mavericks, iPads, maybe even iPads, a smartwatch, and a TV. You know, I if they're going to cram all this stuff into one event, uh, maybe they don't have time to do in-depth software demos like that. And so maybe the iPad section of the update will just be about you know, a little bit of iOS 7 plus, like, new iPads, models, prices, specs, and then they move on. I think they've got to have software to demo. And I I don't know. I just fired up numbers on my phone. <laughs> I'm surprised you even have it installed. I, I deleted them a while ago. I'm just like, I, know, never, I never use them. I have it because I keep... Um, I keep the Daring Fireball sponsorship schedule in a numbers spreadsheet. And usually almost, you know, not, I would, I don't remember the last time I opened it. It certainly wasn't, it hasn't been open since I bought this new phone. So it's probably been months, but you know, I keep it in iCloud and you know, that way if I ever do need, you know, to answer some sort of sponsorship question while I'm on the phone, I can access it, but it looks ridiculous. It is so over the top, <laughs> you know, skeuomorphic just to use the word, to, you know, everybody knows what I mean, but with the marker yeah. felt for the tabs and the paper, texture on the tabs and a wood background and i mean everything's in there it's got wood linen paper (laughs) the keyboard i think they've got to have new versions of these apps got to 
Well, but I mean, you could say that about a lot of things that they don't have right. versions for. Right. There's a lot of things they I have mean, to you do. You could say that on the Mac for, you know, for a while. But again, you're right, though, that it is, it's like more in your face there that it's old. Like I said, like on the Mac, you don't really notice day to day use. On, on, the I, on iOS 7, you really do notice when things are not updated. Yeah. And there's other little things, too, like that. So they, they, and I've seen people, you know, people, some people have written to me about, the fact that iOS 6 apps get these old UI controls. Like, why not give them the new keyboard? Why do they make them have an ugly keyboard? Uh, and I'm not sure how much of that is technical about what version of the SDK apps are compiled against and what they ex- you know can expect and how much of it is, well, they actually do kind of want to make your apps look dated because they want you to up, you know, they want that gentle pressure to update and recompile and redesign for iOS 7. I don't think it's necessarily that. I, I think if you if you consider what an app would look like if it had like half iOS 7 style stuff and half iOS 6 style stuff, it would look bad and it would have potentially big problems. And so I think they just did it this way because an app that has elements of both mixed in haphazardly is a way worse situation for everybody involved and than are, just making it look like a good, like just making yeah. it look exactly like it did on iOS 6. And there are some ch- things that are updated, like UI alert is new everywhere. Although you get a different tap down color, you get like that bright blue color when you're Ooh, running yeah. a, a non updated app. And, and some of the things too, like the, the mail compose sheet that you can call up from an action sheet, that's newer right. than 7. You know, but but still, yeah, most of it is iOS six style yeah. when you're running an old app, and, and I think it's I think that's just because it would just break so many things if they tried to mix in more elements of seven into the UI. This is is a complete utter digression from talking about next week's event, but it wouldn't be an episode of the talk show with a long parenthetical digression. Um, Guy English and I last week had spent some of the time on the show talking about the people holding out and not uh, willfully not upgrading to iOS 7. Um, and how many are there? Is is it going to be bigger this year? Like, we, sh- Yes, we did see another huge first week upgrade to iOS 7, and at one point it was tracking faster than iOS 6 did as updates. But maybe there will be, because the changes are so different and some people feel so strongly about them, maybe there will be a bigger contingent this time that holds on. More or less what we talked about. One thing we didn't, talk about. And I guess, I don't think it it just didn't occur to us, but a bunch of people wrote to me and said, here's why I'm staying with iOS 6. My phone is jailbroken and I want to keep it jailbroken for X, Y, reasons X, Y, Z. And a lot of the people who wrote to me have perfectly valid reasons. You know, some people it's because they're, you know, they live in a country or something where you need a jailbroken phone to get it on the network you want it on or something like that. But the thing is, is that iOS 7 has not yet been jailbroken. Really, I I didn't realize that. I, I don't pay that much attention to it, but I, I, that surprises me. I because I don't jailbreak and I don't really care about it. I just don't have strong feelings about it. I I I hadn't really thought about that, but I, once the readers pointed it out to me, I realized that I I hadn't seen the uh, holy cow iOS seven is jailbroken day on tech meme yet. Which you know every every yeah. previous year it's always been presented as you know you know some kind of scandal that that the iPhone new version of iOS has been jailbroken. Jailbreaking is always a lot more popular than people like us think it is. Oh, I definitely know that. Definitely. Well, you know, and I think, and I, you know, and I even had, had, 
I know that it's true, but I know that I always lapse into forgetting that it's true, just like on last week's show. <laughs> right. 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 Like, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me at all if a sizable chunk of, because what is iOS 7 at now? Like 70% or something? I think it's somewhere around there. It wouldn't surprise me at all if like 15% of that, like 15% total was jailbroken. And that's why those people are holding out. That would not surprise me at all. Because it's really very popular, especially in, you know, certain parts of the world where like almost everyone's jailbroken. And certain communities of like certain kinds of nerds and, and certain kinds of people with certain needs or people who want like a tethering hack or something like that. Like it's very, very popular. Yeah. And so yeah, that wouldn't surprise me at all if that was a big chunk of it. I didn't even realize that it wasn't jailbroken yet because they've, they've gotten so fast at it generally with new releases. Right. It always pops up whenever there's a um, like a game developer, and you know, I think because it's I think jailbreaking clearly skews younger. You know, it's a t- like a teenager in twenties type thing. I think just in broad terms. I mean, I'm sure that there's people of every age who jailbreak for whatever reason, but you know, it's a hacker type thing. Um. And so, you know, games are popular, you know, and, and one of the big things with jailbreaking is, you know, it, it becomes possible to pirate iOS games. And whenever developers release numbers, you know, like developers who have like an online part of the game so they can see how many users they have, you know, they end up with these user numbers that are way higher than uh, the paid number of apps that they've sold. Oh, yeah. I mean, even like I, I had uh, when I was running Instapaper, I had integrated uh, Crashlytics, which is this this crash tracking thing, and they in their analytics they will tell you for each crash um, what percentage of the people who had that crash are jailbroken because they just try yeah. to detect that, which is useful to know. So I had this one crash that was affecting like a, a nice like even slice of the market. Like it wasn't just affecting a certain edge case; it was affecting like you know every tenth person or something like that like, every so often. So it was it was a nice like fair random slice of the of the user base. And it was something like 20% jailbroken. And certainly Instapaper's user base is probably more geeky than the average, but not by as much as you'd think. And that's just a, that's an incredible number yeah. for a non-game app that is pretty widespread and isn't all nerds or isn't all people in a certain country. That's really incredible. So I wonder, with iOS 7 not yet being jailbroken, is it... Just the luck of the draw, you know, like, I mean, the way that these jailbreaks work, my, you know, layman's understanding is, you know, the the jailbreak community looks for or hoards even exploits where they can get code to run. And then once they can get code to run through some sort of exploit in the OS, they know the certain, you know, paths that they can take and which files to modify in the system to, you know, defeat the aspects of the os that you know that jailbreaking is meant to defeat is it just the fact and those bugs are so hard to find and i'm sure that they're harder you know as the years have gone on and apple's added more security features um uh you know randomizing memory locations and stuff like that uh that it's just gotten harder to defeat or or maybe you know has apple done something specifically with the design of ios specifically to make it harder to jailbreak it's always been very unclear to me just how strongly Apple feels like at the executive level about jailbreaking and how much, you know, they should bother to sort of try to defeat it. You should get Grant Paul on here. He would he'd be he would be able to talk about that in a more qualified way. I oh, obviously, because he's actually like a wizard in the community. 
Yeah, yeah that's he a was good on, idea. He was on some show. It wasn't yours, though, was it? it he no, was on a show was I heard like six months ago. It was really good. I think it might have been Debug. Hmm. Um, yeah, you should get him on here. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that, too. But, you know, ultimately, like, there, so there's jailbreakers, that, and that's a whole thing. I, I think a lot of people, like, I was, I saw my mom today, and, and she has, like, the free iPhone 4, which I told her not to buy, but she bought it anyway. Uh, <laughs> Like six months ago, like recently. <laughs> why did she ask? That's the thing when it when your parents That's a, go. I don't know. I, why I did no you idea. ask me? I've, I she said she was thinking about getting an iPhone, and I said, "All right, whatever you do, don't get the free one. Get the one that's a hundred bucks if you like the four S. Like at least right. get that one." And I showed her. She was at my house. I showed her all three. I have you know my drawer full of old iPhones. I'm like, here's the three phones that you're that are available right now. Don't get this one. This one's a hundred bucks. This one's two hundred bucks. I'll even buy the hundred buck one for you if you want. Just don't get the free one. And then she goes like a few weeks later, not even telling me, and just gets the free one. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, so she had like you know seen the things on the news about motion sickness, and she said like one friend on Facebook said that he had to restore his phone and it wiped everything out. And I don't know if that's true. I have no idea. It doesn't really matter. She was scared by the media into not upgrading, so she's like, I'm going to hold on to this iOS six phone forever. And I had to explain to her, like you know, mom. First of all, all the things you've heard are overblown. And not really a problem. Second of all, uh, every time Apple releases anything new, you're going to see all these crazy news reports about it because that's how people make money in the media. Third, uh, you can't hold on to the old version forever. Like, there's going to be a point. And this, it, I, I did a whole episode of Build and Analyze about this forever ago. Like, it's really hard to be like a member of modern computing society in any way and hold on to a really old version of something forever, especially in the world of Apple. You can and, hold on for a year pretty easily. Maybe, yeah, but like you know, if if that phone ever gets damaged and has to be replaced, right. or if you know the screen fails, or like you know the home button fails, like it did sometimes in the four, uh, like if any if any there's any failure that requires replacement, or if you ever need to do like you know a fresh install, I wonder. I think you can do a fresh install of the same version you have, but you know, worst case scenario, when this phone is no longer that useful because the battery's terrible in two years and you buy a new one because it's free uh any new phone you get is going to have the new os so like you can't really hold on to to an old version for very long like in the grand scheme of things like that's just going to get harder and harder to do and at some point you're going to be forced to upgrade and you're going to realize oh okay it's not that bad and and actually it's kind of nice in all these ways and actually oh i kind of like it (laughs) you know that that's always how it goes did you ever run into any problems with Instapaper or, or even the magazine app when you were running that, where, where you had crashing bugs that only affected or seemingly disproportionately affected jailbreak users? Not really. Usually the problem that where, where you hit that, usually the problem was, especially with the older devices that didn't have a lot of RAM, um, some of the jailbreak tools would stay resident in memory and would take up more RAM than an unjailbroken device would, would have. So like you'd have less RAM available. And on iOS, there's no paging out to a page file or a swap file that you, they don't doesn't do that. You know, in iOS, if you ask for a certain amount of RAM, you don't get it. You know, tough shit. Right. And and you'll just, you'll the, probably right, you probably just, didn't accommodate for that. And you'll probably crash. Instead of getting <laughs> the memory back, you're just gonna get a, you get a nope. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Or iOS will say, oh, low memory warning. You could better use less. And you're like, I can't. And then they kill you. Right. So. Uh, that's usually the problem with jailbreak stuff is not that it necessarily interferes with things your code is doing, but it takes up so much RAM that your app doesn't have enough space to run and gets killed. And 
it's hard to test for that, and it's really hard. It's kind of hard to avoid that. Instapaper in the magazine never really used enough RAM for that to be a problem. It's more of a problem for games and uh, and like really heavy productivity apps. Yeah, I think I think it's I think the memory thing is probably one of the main issues because I think that they 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 diddle with so little uh, that it doesn't make it more likely that you're going to crash. As opposed to, and this might be predating your time on the Mac, but like when Mac OS X first came out. Um, People ran these hacksies. That's actually what they were called, H-A-X-I-E, from Unsanity. And there were other people, too. People used to run these, what were they, symbol plugins, S-I-M-B-L. It was a, oh, yeah, I got some of those. Yeah, and you know, I guess people still use them. But they were a lot more common in the first five, six years of Mac OS X than I think they are now. But if you were a Mac developer... Um, you inevitably you'd you'd get crashes. You know some of these things would just make your app crash, and your app would never the, you'd never see this crash unless you had like this specific hacksy or symbol plugin in the stack trace that you got with the bug report. All of them were there, and the question is, what do you do? Do you do you do you support that? Do you work around it? Like at bare bones, they didn't. I'm pretty I'm 99% sure they still don't. They'll be polite about it, but they, you know, that the resp- response from support is that you know, you know, we can't support third-party extensions that modify the system itself. And some people, yeah, I, don't, would, I don't really think you have a, a good alternative there as a software company. I think you just that's pretty much what you have to say. Like you can make some effort to be like, all right, well, if you send me the crash log, if there's like an obvious easy way that we can work around this, we'll try. You know, but. In reality, it's it's pretty hard to support that kind of stuff. Right. And from the user's perspective, they just want that one. They just want you to support that one system hack. And why can't you just support that one? The problem is, from the developer's perspective, it's an infinite. it becomes an infinite array of platforms that you support. It's the one guy has the one extension and the other. The other guy has this one and that one. And you, you've got to test it, you know, and sometimes to reproduce it, you've got to have that exact configuration. Right, and then, like when when ten dot n plus one comes out, and all these extensions change the way they interact with things because something changed, then you got to test it for all those versions too. Right. So I don't think jailbreaking is a support problem that way. I think the memory is, but I do know that there are developers who, um, who detect it or try to detect jailbreaking. You know, there's various ways to to take a guess, and then if they do, they won't give you support because they just, just they, they don't want to support people. They don't want to spend tech support resources on people who pirated the app. That's, you know, I, I, I thought about doing things like that, but the problem is, as you said earlier, like there's a lot of, you know, fairly legitimate reasons why somebody would jailbreak. One of the biggest being the phone's not available in their country uh, or, or on their carrier of their choice. Um, and usually for me, the second biggest being, um, tethering hacks which i guess you could argue right. whether that's legitimate or not people trying to get tethering for free but right. okay but uh so you know not every jailbreaker is doing it like quote optionally in in their in their mind at least yeah in fact probably none of them are but so it's it's hard like morally and customer satisfaction wise it's hard to say i'm just not going to support jailbreakers because that's you know in their minds that's a pretty inflammatory view and you're going to hear about it, <laughs> and and they could still one star you, and and they could still you know trash you in public or something. Yep. So it's it's not it's not a great situation to put yourself in. Sometimes if you don't really even need to. even if it's not like so you know I, I'm pretty familiar with the Vesper reviews, um, 
And I'm sure, you know, every developer knows what you read your are. reviews. Uh, I did for a while. I haven't looked in a while. I looked at the first. We have good reviews, though, because we're a paid app. If we were if we were free, we would not. Um, That's true. But every once in a while, I, I, I see them more often when I'm actually looking and thinking about buying an app. And I'll say, well, what are the reviews? And you can always tell that, you know, they're all lowercase or else all uppercase. And <laughs> even before you start reading, you can just see. Like sometimes you can just see how poorly punctuated a, a a comment is, you know, and you just know to skip it. And they'll say stuff like crashes all the time. And you just know that if it crashes all the time for you, but not for everybody, there's, you know, there's a chance that the problem is your device. Yeah, it's it's tough. It, it's and and the other problem is sometimes apps really do crash all the time because sometimes like the developer didn't test on like an iPad 1. Or an iPad, the iPad 3 is actually very hard to support because of its, you know, it could handle Retina, but just barely, and the CPUs were slow. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, like, there, there, there are these handful of devices that are way more likely that you're going to, like, run out of memory on one of them or hit the, you know, one of the timeout killers. Like, if you, if you take too long to launch, uh, Springboard will just terminate your app and right. just crash it out. And so, like, if you do a lot on, on startup or even... Even if you don't do a lot on everyone's startup, but let's say someone has like a lot of data in your app, maybe you'll have to do a lot on the startup, and then maybe on the lowest end device that it will run on, like a 3GS, maybe it it will take too long and crash. With right. the, and developers don't usually test those kind of edge cases. App review doesn't test those kind of edge cases. So a lot of times that really is legitimate. <laughs> right, and something that maybe only comes up on the low-end device, you don't test for it. You, maybe you test for the extreme data set, but you're testing on a, your phone, which is a 5S, right. and it's way faster than the 4, which is where the the you know the springboard is reaping the process. Exactly. All right, a uh, little bit more. I'll get back to uh, our last thoughts on what we might see next week, but let me do the third sponsor. Yep. It's our good friends at Audible. They're the leading provider of downloadable audiobooks and they have a special offer extensive exclusively for our listeners audible offers a hundred thousand books covering virtually every genre now i i just heard today on your show that they have one hundred and fifty thousand books i think they gave me bad data here yeah they told me a couple of months ago i could almost do this ad read from memory they they told me a couple of months ago to to update the number to 150 that they, they had they had finally crossed that barrier and you know they wanted me to put that in. They have a lot of books. If you want to they listen do. to a book, Audible has it. Listen to audiobooks anytime, anywhere. I didn't even know that there were that many audiobooks being produced. Like it always seemed like when you go to the library, when you know back in the Stone Ages, there'd be like you know thirty of them, maybe. It's a but lot. They, they found all of them. Yeah. Uh, you can listen to them on your iPhone, your iPad, computers, Kindles. Uh, they're just they're just MP3 audio files or AAC or whatever. But you could play them on your iPad. You could have an iPad class, uh, iPod Classic. Listen to the audio book there. Anywhere where you think you could play downloadable audio, you can play an Audible book. Here's the best part: they've got an offer for talk show listeners to get a free audio book and a 30 day trial. You go to www.audiblepodcast.com/slash/talkshow. No the to take advantage of this special offer by doing so you don't you get the chance to uh, check out a great service and you support our show at all uh, as well because they know you're coming from the show when you use that code to go there and get the deal uh, they always like us to offer every time they sponsor the show they want a book recommendation 
So I don't know. I didn't know what to do. I don't know what to suggest. I'm never sure. I, I read books, but I don't know what to suggest. But uh, I thought of one. Here's one that I thought, and I know they have it. There's uh, Stephen King has a new is a sequel to The Shining. I haven't read The Shining since I was sometime in high school or junior high. Uh, obviously, famously, I'm a big fan of the movie. Um, but he has a sequel out to The Shining, where little young Danny from The Shining is now it's like tracked in real life, um, and is now like a forty year old man. Ends up in, in hindsight, I didn't never really thought about it, but Danny is in the real world is roughly my age. Danny was about my age when The Shining came out, and and now in this new sequel, Doctor Sleep, he's still my age. Um, so there's actually two recommendations: The Shining and Doctor Sleep. I haven't read Doctor Sleep yet, but uh, I'm going to. And the reason why I'm suggesting it is that uh, Stephen King, in in as he makes the publicity rounds for Dr. Sleep has reopened his, his beef with Kubrick's adaptation of the movie. He was never a fan. And, uh, uh, apparently he used to badmouth it all the time when it first came out. And then apparently, I guess what happened is that when he re-secured the, the film rights to the book so that he could make the God awful ABC miniseries, uh, like in the nineties, which was his vision for a movie of the shining, um, he, whether like legally agreed to it or just like gentleman's handshake agreed to just stop talking about Kubrick's version. But now with this Dr. Sleep promotional tour, he's, he's, uh, uh, opened it up again. I'm thinking about a show, uh, sometime in the next few weeks where maybe I'll have somebody on and talk about this whole thing and about like the obligations of, you know, what, what are the obligations for a movie adapt adapted from a book to sort of stay true to the material and, and, and that sort of thing. But I think it would help in the meantime, before I do it though, I, I mean, I know the movie like the back of my hand, but I feel like I should reread the book and, uh, and maybe read the sequel too, even though the sequel is a little, I guess somewhat irrelevant, but why not if I'm on a roll? Um, cause I'd like to reread the original book before I read the sequel anyway. So there you go. If you want to be ready for that, ready for that discussion on the talk show sometime, I don't know, before the end of the year, uh, you could do it by listening to the audiobook. Audible has both. They have both the, the Shining and they have the new Doctor Sleep. So my thanks to them. And again, the URL is uh, www.audiblepodcast.com slash talk show. You know, in addition to podcasting, it's kind of hard to think of a medium that has taken more advantage of variable bit rate encoding than audiobooks. Because you figure, like back in the old days when you know you couldn't make like a lower bit rate cassette that would play longer, right? So you'd have like these audiobooks where you'd have to they'd all be abridged, and you'd have to get like the binder of like fourteen cassettes out of the library. Well, on your on your show this week, Siri, you guys had Audible. I mean, this is a coincidence. I mean, this is not... I certainly didn't ask you to be on the show because we both had Audible as a sponsor, but... Uh, <laughs> I mean, all of our shows have a I lot mean, a of... a pretty weak reason. <laughs> um, but on your show, John Syracuse recommended a book, and his book was an unabridged thousand-page book, and it was 66 hours. <laughs> yeah. And, and confirm... <laughs> I mean, this is, like, totally true. That was not a joke. Like, yeah, it's actually broker. 66 hours. So if you bought that on cassette tape, <laughs> even if you got... I think the biggest tapes were 
120 in that era? Eight or 90 even, yeah. 90 was big, and I think they might have had some 120s, but I think the 120s would gum up some of the tape players. Yeah, if the tape would be like really thin to, to fit that much in there. But even if you did get it onto 120-minute <laughs> cassettes, you're still talking about 33 cassette tapes. And if it was 60-minute tapes, it would be 66 cassettes. Yeah, that's... <laughs> it, I mean, it would have to come with like a free... Uh, It'd be like an encyclopedia, like yeah, buying like, like a, a big encyclopedia set. That would well, you see, this is, this is, I'm sure this is way, way before your time. You're too young. But like when I was in high school and we all had cassette tapes, like it, we'd all had like these briefcases where you would keep your tapes, you know, and then you could like take the briefcase in your car. You'd have so, to, so you'd, there was a cassette version of the CD binder? Yes, yeah, but it was a briefcase. It was wow. or like a briefcase looking thing where you'd, you'd unclasp it and then they'd be in there, <laughs> you know. Sort of like a, a shelf almost. That's amazing. Yeah. But anyway, go listen to Audible. I've always thought that was a great match. And I've I've heard Audible sponsoring podcasts ever since before I even had a podcast. But it's such a natural fit. I don't think there's anybody who's ever been a more natural fit. Because the only people who hear the ad are people who are listening to spoken word audio material. Right, it's almost like you're advertising for a competitor. Uh I've thought of that too, but what I have come to realize from feedback from listeners of the show is that the show I don't do I I don't do enough shows. Like they're the people who listen to the podcast the most have so much time that they need to fill or want to fill. You know, whether it's a long commute or whatever other they're you know maybe they listen to podcasts while they work. Whatever it is, they can't, like can't get enough. In my yeah, so most I, people either listen to no podcasts or a lot of podcasts. Like none, one, or a lot. Yeah, exactly. What else? Do you think they're going to do anything with Apple TV next week? I doubt it. I don't I, know. I, I do mean, too. it's possible, I, but uh, I, I really doubt it. It's certainly like a TV set. I don't see that happening, no. uh, possibly ever. But uh, even with the Apple TV box, I mean, they just did a big, a big software update. Um, I don't think we're going to see new hardware. I don't think there's much of a reason for for what the box does today. I don't think there's a whole lot of motivation to have a hardware update. Yeah, I don't either. I think that the the next one might be a year out or two years out, but at some point when they can put like an A7 into a $99 iPad TV box, and then maybe you'll have something that that could really be different. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe it's just me being weird, but I don't see the TV market as this massively exciting thing for Apple. Like, I think I think they're already in it you know, a little bit with the Apple TV as we know it today. I don't think there's like a massive amount more that they're likely to actually do and succeed at. Yeah, I don't um, think so. Either. It's just such a messy market with so many entrenched interests and, and it's it's so hard to penetrate that wall and get anywhere useful. Um I, I don't really see it happening. Like I and and it's such a weird market too in in the way that, you know, like the, the reason why I don't I don't expect them to make a TV set because how often do you upgrade your TV set, and what's the margin on that? Like, it's it's not you know you upgrade it like every you know five to ten years maybe, and like it's different like with phones and iPads and computers where like you can buy a new one every couple of years or even with phones like every year, and it doesn't feel ridiculous or wasteful. If you were buying a new TV every year, you'd feel like a dick because like, yeah. you have to like take this like where are you going to put the old one? You got to yeah. get rid of it. Like it's yeah. it's a big like. I don't know, and it, it just feels it feels more wasteful when the things are that big and that expensive to just go through them every year. And I, I just 
I don't see the business being that profitable in selling the TV. Yeah. I think um, that I wouldn't be surprised if, and I've said this before, if if Apple's Apple TV strategy is right what we see in front of us. Yeah, I think, you know, I think you're right. It's this $99 thing. I, they got to have a better remote eventually, some kind of Bluetooth type thing. But, uh, you know, a couple of channels, no, maybe no App Store, you know, because I don't know. I'm not quite sure whether, you know, letting anybody write a channel for it makes sense. But, you know, could be. But it would be mostly for just for video content, you know. Yeah, I don't think an App Store makes sense today with the input method. You know, yeah. obviously, and you, you've had shows about this. I'm not going right. to get too far into this. You've had, you know, obviously, if if they were like, if they were to release like a game controller for it, um, that would be a little bit different, maybe. But I I don't see them really having a ton of interest in that market, even. Like I I think you're right. I think what we see today is is uh, what they plan to do for the foreseeable future. Right? You know, maybe maybe they want to like break into the game market in a couple of years more more aggressively, but. I think they already have with the iOS devices. Right, like I, I, I don't see that even being relevant. Like, who cares about the console game market when they're dominating handheld games and casual games? Yeah, and I think you know, I think that they're selling a ton of selling and renting a ton of movies and TV shows, and you know, could obviously could be a lot more. But the only way to get to a lot more would be to somehow break the the cable TV monopoly. You know, and that's just not going to. Yeah. It's just too complex an issue. And that yeah. might, that might also cause them trouble in their content business. Like right. it would make them a lot more enemies, right? Uh, and many of those enemies, like the cable companies, also own TV networks or production companies, and and that would be that would be a problem for their content business, right? But it's you know it's another example of Apple's incremental approach to improving products that I think gets overlooked because people keep waiting for the spectacular, amazing. This is from twenty five in, in the twenty five years in the future. Wow moment. Whereas if you compared today's Apple TV against an Apple TV from like four years ago, it's amazingly better, and it has things like HBO. And yes, you have you only get the HBO if you sign up for HBO on your cable contact contract or whatever. But there's no way Apple can't solve that on their own. If HBO says we can do it, but only if we ensure that the person has cable TV HBO, then you know what's Apple going to do? They can't go around them. But now we have H- you can get HBO on your Apple TV. It's There's still cool. also a lot of room for improvement. Just doing the same feature set they're doing now, like you know, as I said, like if there's if they improved text input, so when you're searching for a show, you can do anything besides that stupid way to do it, or pairing your iOS device and trying to use the remote app, which is clunky at best and they can make uh, it easier to scrub video you know yeah, go a little like forward and a little back there's there's so much and and also you know things like if they would and this is questionable with business priorities but if they would ever have a universal search where i can search one place and it would search itunes and netflix and you know if you're a member of hulu right. search that stuff like that you know like that search everything that you're that you're signed up for right because if you know because otherwise you know people are doing this now they're already going and typing in the same thing into Netflix, and then if they don't see it on Netflix, then they'll go to the iTunes. Like, people already do this, and it sucks. So uh, maybe, th- this is wishful thinking, maybe they would someday have a, a, a universal search. But, you know, you know, so you can look at the problem set as it, as it exists today without adding any major new capabilities, and you can say there's still a lot of room for improvement here in yeah. both hardware and software. And so this, yeah, you're right. I think this is just, I think this is what we're going to have for a while. Yeah, I think so too. I have two other things on my list. I know the show's been long. We'll try to try to get through these. Quick. See, I love how your show is unapologetically long. <laughs> I really thought last week's with Guy was going to be short, and I, I there was a funny thing where uh, 
Amy and Paul's just the tip ended with Amy saying uh, to Paul, we don't have anything going on. And the first thing I said to Guy in the, you know, the cold opening of last week's the talk show was me saying, I don't think there's much going on. Yeah, that was pretty great. And they were released, like, just the tip was released shortly before the talk show. So if you had them both in a playlist, right. it would go one right after the other. Like, it was perfect. I heard it that way, like, organically. It was, it was And it, it, everybody thought we planned it, but I don't, I don't you know... It, it was i don't even i didn't even know where our show opened like uh you know i don't edit the show uh caleb sexton does and he does a great job of it but he'll he picks a good part in the entry to do it but um but paul and amy edit their own show so they and, and i didn't listen to it in advance so it was truly just uh a coincidence but it was very funny I forget where i was going with that oh i was going to say that i thought last week's show with guy was going to be short because i really didn't think we had a lot going on well, but it was – what's good about, about your show you know, being long is like you know, you, a show like Twit, which is boring as hell, like you don't want that to go long. Sorry if you like that show anyway. <laughs> you, know, you, you, don't, you don't want shows like that to go like two hours, and, especially because they, they often do. But uh, you know, like, when your show with Guy ended, I was like, oh, man, I, I, I wish there was a little bit more of this discussion still happening. Like it's all about – whether you want more of right. it or not, like whether you notice that it's been two hours. Yeah, it's been a while and since I've for, gotten a complaint about the length of the show. Right, like for a good show, like you know, once you blow past the uh, the cellular download limit, which we're way past, <laughs> you know, once you blow past that, uh, then who cares? You know, then does, that's the only complaint that's really valid for like show length besides it being boring. And so, you know, if people are liking what you're saying, keep going. You know, one thing I have a third thing I want to say, and this is. Uh, couple of them from your show, um, the ATP. I'm going to call it ATP because I find accidental tech podcast to be a, a mouthful. Yeah, that's fine. Um, it makes me realize that, I mean, I try to do a show every week, but I end up not. And and I t- in the back of my head, I think I miss a couple of weeks a year. But then I realized like on the one-year anniversary, I was only at like episode 40. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> it's not even close to 52. You guys are, you guys are like catching up to – to this show in episode numbers. Like on this run of the talk show, um, I'm at this, the, the episode you and I are recording as we speak is episode 57. Uh, and you guys at ATP are already at 37. And I still think of ATP. Well, no, last night we recorded 35. 35. All right. Well, you're close, but you're, you know, it's, it's like spitting distance. And I still think of your show as brand new. I still think of the car show you had before that ATP spilled out of as being kind of new. Right. That was in like February. Like, it, it, I mean, it is brand new. We just, we just are, we're all the kind of nerd that like never missed a day of school. But that's amazing to me. It's a, I can't believe, I still think of ATP as being brand new. I can't believe you guys are at episode 35 already. Neither can I. It is brand new. I mean, we just started it. The first episode of ATP, I think, was in March. I mean, it was, it was not that long ago. But yeah, it's I, I, it's going great. It's going fantastically. Our numbers are fantastic. I, it has it has gotten popular very quickly, like way more than I thought. And what's funny is, you know, like all the reviews are pretty much the same. The reviews are like, "I'm an arrogant asshole." Who the hell is Casey? But John Syracuse is amazing. <laughs> like everyone loves John. Like. They- no one has a complaint about him ever. It's it's pretty comical. I, there wasn't. I remember an episode from a couple of weeks ago where Casey was wasn't he reading some of the 
bad reviews about Casey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think he called it doing a Groover. I remember I was like, and that's always like a little bit of a jolt when you're when I'm mentioned on some other show. Um, anyway, the thing on this week's show, I, I even I wrote about it on during Fireball today. It was a bit about. Uh, Siri and latency, and it all came from a bit on your show where Casey mentioned that on this week's or last week's episode of the uh, Agents from Shield show or whatever it's called, the 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 you know Marvel Universe show that doesn't actually have superheroes on ABC. Yeah, you're asking that, the wrong person. What? <laughs> you're asking the wrong person. Well, whatever. This yeah. you know, it's the Shield show. Uh, uh, not to be confused, I guess, with the shit show, but. Uh, um, the joke. There was a joke on the show that somebody said uh, had like a, a, other agents whispering in their ear through like an earpiece or something, and the agent it was you know giving them information about what they were seeing, and it was like this would be like if Siri worked. This is awesome. Some kind of joke like that. And Casey observed, "Isn't that interesting that on national network TV shows, Siri is the butt of jokes that people even know enough you know to get the joke." Um. And you, you know, went on from there, and it was just more or less a, a really great discussion of why doesn't, why can't Apple get something like Siri to work really good and really fast? Like, let's say the way that they, you know, online stuff they don't do that well. On device stuff, they're great at. Like, for example, Touch ID. Touch ID is like a perfect Apple thing. Where yes, there are. It's not the first cell phone that shipped with a fingerprint scanner. There were a couple others, and they all sucked, and everybody hated them, and they were terrible. And they took long and they were finicky and you had to do funny things like roll your finger. And Touch ID, you just put your finger on and then it works. They're great at that. But why can't they get better at online stuff? And the thing I didn't write about today, though, is is uh, comparing them to Google. It is, it's a funny inverse because, on the other hand, Google gets that online latency and accuracy it's it's just ingrained in their culture. It's the whole thing that they started with is that they're going to give you accurate search results really fast. Uh, but, you know, on Android, the the touch latency has always been terrible. Yeah, you're definitely going to hear about that. <laughs> you think I'm going to hear it? What, hear about it how? <laughs> well, they every release of Android, Google says it's improving it. Oh, right. Well, uh, Android, Android's always getting better. Right. And I'm sure that when Android 5 comes out, that there's going to, you know, it, it's as though they've never said it before. They're going to say, this time we've solved it and the latency, you know, the, the frame rate is up and latency is down. Right. And, um, you know, like they had that, like, like buttered toast release or whatever it was. And that was like, it, like it, it, it was measurably improved, you know, so they, they do improve it. But yeah, you're right. Like it overall responsiveness just seems like it's way more of a priority on iOS and the entire OS is architected differently right uh, to 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 emphasize that right and there is something to it where where like even in a big company and you somehow think from the outside that well if you had all the resources that Apple or Google had aren't these solvable problems isn't it solvable to you know to to put an Android device next to an iPhone and say, look, by next year, we want this Android to be, have just the, you know, that type of frame rate and put top engineers on it and give them a year. I and mean, isn't that reasonable? Sounds like it, but that's not really how problems get solved, you know, in, in real life engineering. And you also think, couldn't you, can't Apple just throw money at the Siri team and fix it? And I don't, you know, it just doesn't work that way. There's something to do with like the founding cultures of companies that it it, it prioritizes what they're good at. 
Right. And that tends to not change over time. You know, companies companies that are really good at one thing and, and really don't care about another, those priorities are rarely changed over time. And because the entire company is set up around that and it's it's set up to to reinforce their priorities and to to support the things they want to care about and to ignore the things they don't. And it's just once a company gets the size of something like Google or Apple, like the the chances of of making a meaningful shift and going all of a sudden into like look at the great example of this um, of an attempt to do this, I think, is Microsoft with the internet. You know, this is a very highly publicized thing where like Bill Gates uh, ignored the internet for too long, realized he ignored it for too long, and like tried to turn the company on a dime to all of a sudden be like, oh crap, the internet's a real thing and we have to like get in on this quickly. And if you look at what they did, you know, ret- retroactively or retrospectively, like, you look at what they actually did here, and they really didn't embrace the internet very well. They, they made Internet Explorer, which was doing what they already did well, a desktop app, and in a, integrating it into a desktop operating system. You know, they, they were just playing the same game they always play, uh, just involving the internet, but not really being of the internet. And so then all the stuff that, you know, a true internet, like Google is a true internet company. They've been, you know, the internet is their platform. Android is a side project. The internet is their platform. Right. So, you know, that's like, that's their DNA. Everything they do is about internet services and, and the needs of, the, of internet services. And, you know, so Microsoft, you know, they, they thought they were pivoting the whole company and focusing on the internet full steam but if you look at what they actually did, they just kept doing what they were already good at, and they didn't become Google. They didn't launch major web services for years after that, and they still they still don't succeed that well in web services, and there's still a lot they don't do. Um, they're still focused on desktop software only, or primarily on desktop software these days, and server software, like the stuff they've, they've always done. So even that giant, massive like turnaround that we know about in computer history didn't really actually changed the company that much. Right. They and didn't... so you can look at Apple and Google now and you can say, well, you know, Google is all of a sudden shifting to focus on UI and Android. Well, you know, somewhat, but not great. And Apple trying so hard to focus on these new web services that power their cool stuff. Well, you know, they aren't, they don't seem to be putting that much of a priority on it. Like the whole company's not going to suddenly turn around and Apple become fantastic at web services or Google become fantastic at UI and, and uh, local software. Yeah. I, I think, you know, with your internet Explorer example in hindsight, especially with what they did once they got to IE six and put Netscape under and really sort of dom, you know, got to the point where their browser had just like windows, you know, 90 something percent market share is that it was really, and then they stopped innovating with it. I mean, they really just stopped putting out new versions, that they really just saw it as a way to sort of not kill the internet, but to encapsulate it within IE. Right, it to just neutralize put, the right. effects of it. Right, because they didn't do things. So like Bing is an attempt to be of the internet. And and and, and I want to make fun of it because it's almost like God bless them because if, if not for Bing, what would be the number two search engine? You know, I mean, right. I, don't, I, mean I don't, I don't use it, but I'm glad it's there. You yeah, know? me too. Like I, I, I don't know what I mean. Yahoo stopped running theirs years ago. 
I know, I know a lot of people, you know, like whenever their financial stuff comes out every quarter, a lot of people make hay about the fact that they continually just bleed money out of their, in Microsoft, out of their internet services division, like the Bing division. Um, but I almost want to like say like, Hey, stop making fun of them for that. Because if they weren't, you know, who would be, you know, keeping Google honest as a <laughs> it should second. be like a public foundation to fund Bing. Right. But they didn't even start that until much later. That wasn't, you know, yeah, that they was like didn't a decade after. <laughs> right. Imagine if they had tried to build Bing in, you know, 1995 or 96, whenever it was when Bill Gates had that had that memo. Could have or been even, very different. Even right after it was clear that Google was becoming huge, like 2001. Right. Try to build it then. Right. Nope. <laughs> they I mean, when if, I mean, Bing, I think, came from, like, MSN search and everything, but that even that didn't start at that kind of scale until a few years after that. Right. And the MSN stuff wasn't really... MSN was really more of, like, an AOL, like, an alternative to AOL, not, like, a part of the Internet. It was Right. You know, well, and they, they applied the MSN name, and then the Live name, right. and then the Bing name, and then the Windows name, all over so many things over the years. It's It's kind of hard to say what each thing was and wasn't. And and so I th- I don't know I think maybe the explanation and I think they will get better in the long run like you know give it some years and Android's you know frame rate and etc is certainly going to get better and there's a certain point where you, you there's no point in getting better than sixty frames per second um, and I'm sure that as you know there was that that interesting study from last month about the touch responsive times on devices and at Apple's, you know, like an iPhone five was like five times more responsive than even the best Android phone in terms of the like milliseconds it takes for a touch to register on screen. Um, But I'm sure that like those Android phones probably have a touch responsiveness that's better than the original iPhone from 2007. So, you know, they're catching up and I'm sure Siri will keep getting better. But I do think that they're both just evidence that even in a big company like that, there's like a, just a, a there's only so much attention to go around, and if if your attention is on making, you know, what your top priority is as best as it can be, and in, insanely great, there's just not that much attention to go around to the secondary and tertiary priorities. Right. It can't be like oh everything's a priority. Right. You know, like that's that's not a real thing, uh, as as Merlin tells us. Like that's that's. That doesn't mean anything. Exactly. And, you know, it can't be like Microsoft, no compromises. You know, that right. we, we know that that's bogus too. Like it, it, you have to focus on something and, and necessarily like if you're going to do one thing really well and have an intense focus to be able to do it really well, chances are other areas are going to be neglected or ignored. Right. Uh, here's my last topic. And this is very specific to you as the arrogant asshole. Is the other thing you said on the show is you just as an example you'd mentioned something about you know that that uh, uh, and same type of problem you said like hey Microsoft let's say they hire a new CEO and the new CEO says you know what one of our problems is our one of our problems is that our prob- our products just are not as cool as Apple's or some other companies too we need to invest in cool and and throw money we need to I'm going to put more money into cool. Well, it doesn't work like that. You can't just throw money at it. And it's really, if, if and I agree with you that Microsoft, that actually is a problem that they have, is a sort of institutional deficiency of cool. Uh, it's, it's ingrained in all of the people who are there, everybody. Now, I'm not saying that there's no cool people who work at Microsoft. I, in fact, I know the opposite, that there are very cool people who work at, at Microsoft. But on the whole, on average, if you took 
40 Microsoft employees and 40 Apple employees. I would call, you know, I think collectively, I would find the Apple people to be cooler. Yeah, like who would you rather hang out with at a party? Right. And, you know, uh, that's not to say that there's some uh, n- not somebody else who 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 wouldn't find the Microsoft people to be cooler and say, well, those Apple people are assholes. They're all, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the problem they would see them. But I think, and this is like the sort of thing I don't even want to write. I, it's like, I feel like it's, I'd rather just talk about it. And it's like, but I've thought for years that part of what gets Apple this, that fuels this, why in the world does Apple get treated so much differently than other companies in the press? And and when they you know do things, they everything is in different proportions to how other companies get treated. And it can't just be about the fact that Apple's the biggest company because it's been true from when Apple was far from the biggest company. It's always been true that Apple gets treated differently. I think it's because they get treated differently because they're they are so cool. And I mean yeah. that sounds so stupid to say, but it is. And you know, like Steve Jobs was a cool guy. He really was. He was a very cool guy. Bill Gates was definitely not cool. I mean, no. Bill Gates is like the opposite of cool. And it just sort of infused the company DNA. But for people who aren't cool themselves, they either don't see it, and so it's it really is seemingly like a mystery, and, and hence all the, you know, Apple is a cult type thing. You know, because they, they just don't see it. They don't have that fine sense of what is cool and what's not cool. And so, if they don't detect it, it does look like people are are behaving irrationally or like religious zealots or something. Or if they do see it, they resent it. Right. That's the big thing. Like, cool is polarizing. And and first of all, you know, you look at other things in our culture that get a lot of attention. Things like you know, celebrities, um, the president. You know, like there's, like you can look at like other figures or companies that are very much in the public eye, and it's often a very popular thing. It's a whole industry to like take them down and point out all their failures. You know, the whole like tabloid industry is like this massive worldwide phenomenon. Like people love when the cool kid messes up or you get a bad picture of them. You know, like the, people, people crave that. It's it's really sad, actually. It's pretty terrible for society, but uh, but that's how people are. And and I think Apple has reached that point. They're they're popular. They are cool. They're very much in the public eye, and and certainly you're right that a lot of that was Steve Jobs. Um, but I think now that has transcended him, and now it's just the company is that cool and is that public and. I think they're they're bound to not only get a lot of negative attention at all times, just like celebrities do, um, just because there's a lot of money in it, but also there are a lot of people that really don't like Apple. And and part of that, like I, I wrote this thing like a year ago, um, first for the magazine and then for my site, about how like, the culture of Apple uh, is polarizing to people because Apple products say no a lot, and, and they say we know better a lot, and a lot of people, that rubs them the wrong way. But cool itself, cool, and it's funny that you know you and I are talking about this, because I, I don't know about you, but most of my life, nobody would ever consider me a cool guy. No, I'm uh, with you there. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, and, and I have to imagine that that is probably true for at least some portion of an audience of, of a technology podcast, but... Um, 
but as far as I know, you know, so take all my fears with a grain of salt here, because this is foreign territory. But uh, cool also comes from a position of confidence. And there's a very fine line between confidence and arrogance. And even just the reasons you're confident, if someone disagrees with those reasons, then they will see your coolness as arrogance. And so it's a very fine line, and it's very polarizing, and it brings a lot of emotional responses in people. And I think that's really the root of like the of the crazy amount of of negative attention that Apple draws. Well, there's I think there's a multitude of sources, but I think that the coolness angle is one that's underexplored and under considered. Maybe. But, you know, like and certainly you know, like with you know the the Microsoft example, um cool is not usually something that you can buy and it's not usually something that you can switch to easily. It's cool is kind of an inherent quality. Like people either are cool or they're not. And and yeah, a lot of it is confidence and things like that. But yeah, usually these are like ingrained characteristics that are very hard to convincingly fake or to suddenly adopt out of the blue. Um so and and I think the same thing applies to companies and their products, you know. Apple stuff is cool because Apple's cool and Apple's people are cool and Apple's leaders were cool. Right. Uh I don't I don't see that happening at Microsoft, you know, you might get a couple of cool employees here and there because there's a lot of people who work there. A lot of them are pretty awesome, but um, I think as a culture, it's uh, it reflects the founders, right? There and and a perfect recent example of that was that the send off that Balmer had at the big fourteen thousand person uh, meeting. Did you watch that video? I still haven't, but I think I've heard enough descriptions of it from you and everyone else that to have a pretty good idea of what's going I mean, on. I don't want to spoil it, but then you know he gets real emotional, <laughs> and and which in and of itself isn't bad. It's not the emotional part of it, but it's the and then he and he's talking about how he's wanted to play this song in an event for years, but just never had the right time. But now it clearly it's perfect, and it's one of his all time favorite songs. I don't even know who sings it. It's I've had the time of my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's the song. But like the oh, crowd, God. and who knows? It's always hard to tell. Like there's 14,000 people there, and it could be that 8,000 of them were cringing and 6,000 were cheering. And 6,000 cheering people is still going to sound like a lot of cheering. But it just seemed, at least on a video, that the crowd was just eating it up. And again, I, I didn't want to make fun of it when I linked to it, and I hope I didn't come across as that. I meant it sincerely where it was, you know... Uh, it it was definitely Balmer. It went out, he went out his way. And that I is wanna... a good send off song. It... That is not a good song to say you've been trying to play at an event for years. Because <sighs> what what other context would that have ever been but a good idea? It, the, the the words you know I've had the time of my life here and whatever <laughs> is is I guess a good sentiment for a send off. But the actual song itself is such a corny song that it's not cool. Like you know it it's just not a cool song. Was it even cool when it was new? No. I mean, when it was new, like the seventies, yeah. early eighties, maybe. I mean, it, it, was it probably wasn't cool. even cool then. No, it was. You know, it's it's you know, it's like Celine Dion type stuff. You know? Right. It's just never been cool. It may be very popular, but it's not cool, or at least not the kind of cool that I care about. Here, I'm going to Google it. You know, I think one of the, uh, this is this is off the top of my head, so this may be poorly thought out, but it's the finale well, I mean, from uh, Dirty Dancing. Yeah, 
<laughs> when was that at? Like 83 or something or 85? Yeah. So, you know, I think uh, Apple people are people. They're individuals. They, they, they are identified as individuals. And while they work at Apple and they respect it, I get the overall impression from the, from the people I've met and from the executives I've seen in person that, like, you know, if, if Apple went away tomorrow, they would be sad and then they would go do something else. They would, they would like, you know, create something else. They would, it wouldn't be the end of their careers. Whereas Balmer using a song like that is kind of like saying, I'm dying. Like, yeah. this is it. This company was my entire life and now my time here is over and therefore my life is over. And, and that's it's a very different attitude, and it's it's this it's this type of like loyalty and identification, like a self identification with your workplace that cool people don't usually have. Cool people are like you know more more into like self identification as themselves and their personalities, and not so much like team player at all costs. And I yeah, that's it. And another way to look at it is maybe to look at the opposite of it, because cool is one of those words that maybe is so overused and means different things to different people. You know, and like I said, one one person's cool can definitely be different from another person's. But to me, cool is the opposite of corny and awkward. Yeah, that seems right. You know, and, and corniness in particular is to me like sort of the antithesis to corporate cool. And that's what to me Microsoft often is is corny, right? And 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 like when there was somebody linked up last week, there were like there used to be these spoof videos that Balmer and Gates would make when they were working together. Like there's one where they dressed up as Doctor Evil, and uh, Balmer was Doctor Evil, and Bill Gates was Austin Powers. Uh, just so corny. Or or the video that they yanked last month where they had somebody in like a fake Apple product meeting. Uh, you know, they were trying to make fun of the iPhone 5S for only introducing the color gold or something like that. Did you see those videos? No, that sounds like a train wreck. Well, it was really, and it was a train wreck in a corny way. You know, like that's like what made it uncool was the fact that it was so corny. Uh, and I just feel like though that that's that's not something that's easily changed. It's like it's just in the company's DNA. And cool is also like an easy way to be uncool is to be extremely insecure, and uh, and so many of Microsoft's actions have come off that way at the executive level. Like you see, like all the stupid comments that Bombers made over the years about about their competitors and about especially about Apple products, and having like you know the iPhone funeral and stuff like that. Like they 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 keep doing this stuff every yeah. every year or two, and and uh, obviously this is this is not like obviously this is not like a one time mistake they made this is like their culture creates this stuff and encourages it and doesn't see what doesn't see what's wrong with that and uh you know i've always heard from people who worked there or who or who worked nearby i've always heard that microsoft was very uh culturally insular like they they're the whole area of redmond where they are that's where they are redmond yeah yeah the whole area of redmond where they are is like i basically heard it's like just a, a like a little biodome of microsoft like pure microsoft culture right there and they don't really know like they don't really get any idea of how they're perceived outside of that because inside that little tiny hotspot of microsoft activity they are the world and everyone loves them and everyone loves what they do and everyone loves microsoft um 
but you know that's that's one of the reasons why I think their marketing is so weirdly out of touch so often. Hmm. You know, because like they really they they're making stuff that would work in the, in the world there that they know, but they don't realize that's not the whole world. Yeah, and I think that that plays into even product decisions too. Like it just came up again today as all the Windows 8.1 reviews came out and most of them are are like, well, it's a nice improvement over Windows 8, but the fundamental weirdness of having two completely different interfaces that you toggle between in mysterious ways is just weird. Right? Pogue said that, a uh, couple other people said that. It just seems like that's the consensus again. And it just seems like that idea of well we'll just we'll we'll do something better we'll we'll do an ipad like os so far so good uh which and and which they had very original ideas for you know it's just nobody would claim that that the metro interface on windows 8 and windows phone is you know a ripoff of of anything apple did and you know, if anything ios 7 is more along the lines that they carved out with this typographic heaviness and flatness and and those type of things um but then to say, but we'll just and then and then we'll make it even better by saying that you don't even have to leave your old Windows goodbye. We'll have that running one button away, and there you've just lost everything. And I think it probably made tons of sense inside. I think the fact that they didn't revisit it in a year it just shows that they still think it's a good idea. Well, I mean, I had an interesting conversation uh, a little little while back um, with somebody at Microsoft and. We were talking about Windows Phone, and this person was saying that they were asking if if I was going to make Overcast for Windows Phone, and and I said that I have no plans to to even address Android, let alone Windows Phone, and and if I was if I was going to make it for anything else besides iOS, it would probably be Android because that's where all the people are. And basically, I said that I don't really see a future where it makes sense for Windows Phone at all because it's just not taking off at all. Like, there's no motivation to develop apps for that. And and this guy who who worked at Microsoft and and was you know pretty pretty steeped in their culture, he basically denied that. He he basically said that uh, he he kept repeating that it was like it was just a matter of time before Windows Phone takes off and like really takes over the, the market. And he really honestly believed that. And I think it's it's hard to look at Windows Phone objectively at all, and to have the opinion that it's just you know a couple of years away from taking over the market. I mean, that's to, to even think that's in its future at all, let alone coming up soon. Um, I think just does not reflect reality at all. And you know, like the problem with Windows Phone is that it doesn't do anything for the carriers. The carriers love control and exactly. lock-in and everything right. else, so it, it doesn't help them. It, it is as unhelpful to the carriers as the iPhone. Right. However, the carriers reluctantly carry the iPhone because there's such incredible demand for it from consumers that they kind of have to. Right. Windows Phone doesn't have that. So one of those two things has to change. Either it has to start bending extremely to the carrier's will, which I think is unlikely, um, and he, even if they did, I don't think they would be able to help the carriers as much as Android does. And or consumers have to suddenly all suddenly out of the blue massively want those phones. And I don't see that happening either. I, I think if that was going to happen, it would have happened already. So I don't see a future where Windows Phone makes massive differences from where it is now. Similarly, like with Windows 8, 
on tablets and, and God knows what else, um, it seems like Microsoft is unable to see why that's a bad idea. And and maybe 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 we're wrong. Maybe they actually realize it's a terrible idea and are working on the next idea, but it's going to take a few more years. That, that's very possible. Obviously, a major revamp is going to take some time. But uh, I don't... I, I think the more likely explanation is that they don't see the problem. Like, they yeah. really don't see why this is not selling. To them, it's just like... It's just some bizarre fluke in the market that this hasn't sold so well yet. Why and, why doesn't everyone want this? It's just a matter of time. Yeah, and I think part of that is sort of, uh, again, it's it's like built into the company's DNA. And the company's DNA is, I mean, obviously it wasn't always the case because they, you know, were like a 13-person startup, you know, at one point. But the, the by the time their identity solidified, micro, what was Microsoft? Microsoft was the... 1600 pound gorilla of the software industry right then they they had the platforms that everybody ran i mean they basically dominated software for like 20 years like they had they've had so much success right and that if they were going to come out with an operating system for a form factor that people who made devices were going to adopt it i mean even look at the early days of mobile where like Palm at one point was making Windows mobile devices, right? And it's like and yep. for people who were, you know, fans of Palm, it was like, oh, it was it was as though it was as if Apple started making Windows boxes. It was just so gross. But that's the sort of success that Microsoft assumed and I think still assumes, you know. And and to drop a sports analogy on you, it's like with the Yankees, the Yankees have always been, you know, at least since like the Babe Ruth era of the 1920s, the best team. And the years where they didn't win a World Series, even though, you know, they've won an unbelievable number of them. 27 World Series since like the 1920s. But it's not a majority. But as a Yankee fan, and I think even as the Yankee institution, as a, an organization, they saw the years they didn't win as the flukes. The years they didn't win a World Series are always seen as a fluke, and that if they didn't, we'll get them next year. And and but then, like when I was a teenager in the '80s, they went through this long drought where not only did they not win World Series, they were they were actually like a bad team. They had losing seasons. It wasn't like oh they missed the you know finished second this year. Like they missed no, by a lot. Right. They were you know below 500. They lost more games than they won. But I think institutionally, they didn't. They just it never computed for them. And they would, rather than, you know, any kind of radical cleaning house, they would just do what they've always done and just spend a, a ton of money on one guy who they thought was maybe going to, you know, hit a lot of home runs. Um, and as a fan, it really, you know, even as a kid, I, I got caught up in that sort of thinking. But then, like, by the mid-80s, I was like, no, this this team is bad. But I think you that... You wonder, like, does Microsoft even know how to be an underdog? Exactly. That's like, Apple knows how to it. be an underdog. Apple, right. in fact, Apple at its worst is when it's not the underdog. Like some of the worst things they do are when they have too much power and control, and right. they need to like be able to put a little bit into check and and have some you know have a fire under their ass or whatever. Right. Microsoft, like in mobile, not only is Microsoft not number one, they're like barely number three. Like they're like a distant number three or four, maybe. Like, are they ahead of BlackBerry? Finally, I don't even know. They might but be. I think they might be. At least assume they are. Uh, they're like a distant number three, right? And I don't think they know how to be that. 
Yeah. You know, I, they don't know how to be a losing team. Um, and I think in the same way, I think it actually, in some ways, and I know a lot of, I, I'm not by far and away the, not the first person to suggest this, but that Apple, you know, and people who've been there for a long time working in the company still have memory of when the company was smaller. And even for some people who date back long enough was actually beleaguered to use that word. And I think that's kind of good for the company overall. Because it's it's like a it, it, if they see themselves as the upstart still and the little guy, um, that it might be good for them because it keeps them from getting complacent, and that in some ways the incessant media, you know, any little thing wrong with Apple is somehow catastrophic, and they're you know going to go out of business again or going to collapse and become small again, might not actually be bad for the company. It might be bad for the stock price, but in terms for the, you know, temporarily or in the short term. But in the long run, it might be good for the company because it'll, it, it's, it, it's a way of emphasizing the fact that you cannot rest on your laurels. And it keeps it fresh in everybody's mind. Right. But I think that that actually is where Apple gets Today's Apple, I think, run. I think the worst of Apple today is when they still act like a small company in certain ways, um, and they're not. It's like you, you know they they sh- they have to realize that they're in a position of power now. You know, like a lot with a certain like in the early years of the App Store, I think that was the case where they were, um, uh. And, and, you know, to their credit, they've gotten better with that. We don't see so many complaints about app store, app store rejections being arbitrary anymore. But that arbitrariness could fly when you're a small company, and it doesn't fly when you're selling, you know, 20 million iPhones a quarter. Right. It's to, It stops working when, like, every time you do anything blocking any kind of rule, you get, like, a Justice Department inquiry. Right. <laughs> like, that's, that's when it starts becoming a little scary. Like, oh, this is really big that we're playing with here. But yeah, right. I, I do think that um, in the last couple of years, and I, maybe this is Tim Cook's personality showing through a lot, um, I think they've really ironed out a lot of those rough edges. Yeah, I think so, too. All right. Well, that's a short show. Yeah, that's that's pretty short. Yeah, People should be able to listen to this in their commute for a month. Marco Arment, thank, thanks, for, uh, thanks for doing this. Anytime. It's been fun. All right. Uh, thanks.